chaos reign behind him, the boss MotoGP flossed his way to another victory. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 59 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Welcome to all of you that have downloaded this week's edition. A huge thank you to all of you. Uh, for listening, this week's edition of the show looks back on the first European round of the MotoGP season as Marc Marquez took control of the World Championship with his second win in a row, whilst all of the mayhem and incidents occurred behind him, behind our flossing World Champion. We'll talk all about how he took his victory and what that means for the rest of the season and the three-way battle behind him, which ended in tears for all concerned. Um, both Ducatis and Danny Pedrosa both taken out of contention and Andrea Vizioso losing the championship lead as a result. We'll talk about all the issues from the race as Joan Zarco became the nearest contender to Marquez with his second podium of the season. Uh, how Andrea Inone took the initiative in his own team at Suzuki with his second podium in a row. And all of the stories behind as Yamaha had another shocking weekend and Cal Crutchlow saw more points disappear in the gravel trap. We'll talk about Moto2. Not a lot happened in that, but we'll tell you all about Lorenzo Baldessari's brilliant victory in the intermediate class and all of the mayhem in Moto3 as the lightweight class finally delivered the chaotic action that it has been accustomed with over the last few years. A first-time winner in Philippe Ertl, but that doesn't even come close to telling you the story of that one. We'll also tell you all about the action from the Bank Holiday Spectacular at Alton Park in the British Superbike Championship Leon Haslam warming up for his World Superbike return with a double victory. Jason O'Halloran warming up for his World Superbike debut with a podium. Not that he knew it at the time. Um, and we'll also look ahead to this weekend as the World Superbike Championship heads to both Dre and I's, one of our favourite circuits on the calendar. It's Imola um, for World Superbikes this weekend. Um, and we have Leon Haslam, as I mentioned, making his return to World Superbikes. And we also have the greatest World Supersport rider of them all, Keenan Safoglu, bowing out of the sport with one final race appearance. We'll talk all about that towards the end of this week's show. This is, though, episode 59, and uh, for the first time this week, if you listen to our regular podcasts, um, it's the first time this week you can hear the voice of Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. I know, I know. I've missed you guys, too. Um, <laughs> again, sincere apologies for not being on Motorsport 101. For those that follow me on my personal social media, you already know why. I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to be back. And um, yeah, again, a shout out and a thanks to to RJ O'Connell and uh, Ryan King for filling in the last minute and then uh, patching up all the aces and talking sports cars. Um, more about that in just a second. But uh, yeah, pleasure to be back as always. A very intriguing weekend of bike racing indeed. <laughs> it was indeed. It was the first European round of the season at Jerez and uh, the latest round of the British Superbikes at Alton Park. We'll get into all of that in a moment. But first, the places you can find us starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 if you want to follow us on twitter at motorsport underscore 101 for that uh, our website is motorsport101.net you can also uh, find us on youtube you can also find our chat regarding john zarko's move to ktm from last week's show on there um, youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, and if you like us so much that you want to uh, back us financially and earn yourself early access uh, to both of our weekly shows it's patreon you need to go to patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 $5 backing earns you early access to our podcasts. Basically, you get them as soon as they are edited and uh, submitted. Um, and if you back us at the $10 level, you get even earlier early access because you can listen to these shows live on our Discord server. Um, $10 backing on Patreon earns you that. Patreon.com 
forward slash motorsport 101. As Dre mentioned, episode 138 literally went live um, a matter of hours ago uh, as we speak to you on mm-hmm. Friday, May the 11th. Um, 101 hours, I believe, was the title we settled on in the end Indeed. for our sports car special. Um, first of all, shout out to RJ, the host, for um, ensuring that Will Smith's Miami is now stuck in my head and firmly uh, downloaded onto my phone um, <laughs> as, as they discussed uh, Formula One's potential debut um, in Miami, Florida. Um, but yeah, Dre, I know you went on it this week, but yeah, a uh, kind of a show that I know I know you don't ever like to miss a show, but it was a show where praises of Fernando Alonso were sung, so you perhaps uh, picked a good one to miss. Yeah, like, if, if, like again, I never like to miss a show, but if I had to skip out on one, the sports car one with Fernando Alonso being the main focus would probably yeah. be a good one to miss. Um, but uh, yes, quite right. Episode one thirty-eight, Miami's F one potential brought into the mix, as well as a sports car special. As we, as uh, RJ and Ryan reviewed the opening of the 2018-2019 WEC Super Season. It's just silly as it sounds um at the six hours of spa involving fernando alonso winning on his debut for toyota racing um the controversy regarding potential team orders and a flying smp no seriously like a, a car literally took off from the top of Rathalon. um that alone is worth the price of admission to worth listening if you ask me on top of that we also covered imsa um in their 2018 season continuing at mid ohio as Helio Castroneves would go on to lead the way for Team Makura, who still has magnificent hair. <laughs> and of, and a review of the Super GT, Fuji 500 as well, as Nismo made some more history as well. So all of that, the, the preview hype for Miami, getting on the F1 calendar as well. RJ O'Connell and Ryan King had it all covered in a sports car special of Motorsport 101. Tune in now. Mm. And uh, episode 139 uh, coming next week. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about that. I did this show, but um, I'd immediately like to um, sort of suggest the title as the Kevin Magnuson Hatchet Job um, next week. Oh, um, God. God, that guy needs to uh, needs to chill um, in Formula One. More on that uh, at the end of this show. But uh, let's uh, let's stick to two wheels for now and talk MotoGP. First of all, let's uh, look back on last weekend's first European round of the championship um, at Jerez. Um, I have to say, Dre, in the lead-up to it, based on what we saw in qualifying and in free practice, it did look kind of how we expected it to pan out as a Honda-dominated event, mm. um, with Cal Crutchlow taking pole position, having top Friday practice, Danny Pedroza alongside him on the front row, Mark Marquez qualifying fairly poorly for him. It's very rare we see Mark Marquez on anything but the front row of the grid, um, and he qualified mm. fifth. Turns out, though, in the race didn't really seem to matter although the the mayhem ensued behind him as we'll cover shortly Mark Marquez from very early on in the race looked to have it all firmly under control he did um which given the context of the race itself is actually kind of funny but um yeah I mean I I, I did notice going back to qualifying briefly I did notice something that like Marquez seemed to be the only guy that could go more than one hot lap on a run. I did mm. notice that, and he he pumped out pretty much the exact same lap time three times over. He lost it all pretty much in sector four every time because Crutchlow, for some reason, was like a quarter of a second quicker than anybody else in sector four. The mm. last sweeping like two right handers, and then the, the final Lorenzo corner hairpin at the end. Crutchlow just seemed to be demonically fast through there, and that's probably what got him in the pole position. The rest of the the rest of the session was pretty much like eight tenths covering the rest of the field, but Cal had a good third of a second than anybody else. Um, very intriguing qualifying session, but I did notice that Marquez was was the only guy who was able to seemingly put more than one fast lap together, and 
it, it showed in the race. It translated fantastically in the race. He was about the only guy who could pass fairly comfortably. He got to the front of the field. Lorenzo was able to stay with him. I mean, Lorenzo, another brilliant, almost like almost old school, like he was riding in blue again, Lorenzo performance at the start of that race, just comfortably in the lead. Wasn't able to break free. But once Marquez got to the front, he just slowly started to inch away. And um, yeah, uh, that's, that's, um, even before the big talking point of the race itself, he had a couple of seconds in hand um, by that point. Um, and it, it was almost like vintage Marquez. You saw it like about seven laps to go. He pulled the pin, put the fastest, like after the, like one lap after the incident, he sets the fastest lap of the race on a 37-1. And that was the end of it. Like that was, that was the end. And um for a race, he didn't really look like he was going to win after qualifying, especially given how stunningly quick Crutchlow was over a single lap. Yeah, I think I we were all thinking at the end of qualifying, yeah. if Marquez is going to win this one, he's got to work for it. Yeah, he's going to have to work for this one, but he made that look remarkably easy for what is arguably his weakest track on the calendar. He's only had one career win here in his in his Grand Prix motorcycle racing career, dating back to 2010 when he first started as a 16-year-old. He's only ever won at Jerez once, and that was in 2014 when the Honda was a torpedo. Um, mm. Again, and like it, it, that might be an ominous sign for the rest of the field that Marquez has won so comfortably, even before the incident. I think Marquez had it in the bag. Um it's an anonymous sign that on one of Marquez's weaker circuits, a circuit he's never gone particularly well around. He's won and won at a canter in the end. And uh, yeah, that is that that could be alarming for the rest of the championship going forward. So uh, remember, kids at home, don't forget to floss after you brush your teeth. Mm. Yeah, he's uh, he's developed a great habit, Mark Marquez, of uh, some very entertaining celebrations um, as he wins races. It does help when he's so far ahead that you can floss over the finish line. Um, just as he was so far ahead in uh, America mm. that he was able to dab his way uh, past the checkered flag. Um, Indeed. But I was going to ask that. How ominous is this? Because, I mean, we'll talk about Ducati more in a moment, um, but I'm, I'm still not convinced how clear of the field in race trim Marquez and Honda were, because I think, in my view, tw- Valencia 2017, Lorenzo came back to play. Um, mm. and, and I'm not saying that Dovi could have chased down Marquez and beaten him, but I think he could certainly have been closer to Marquez than Lorenzo was. Um, right. he, just, he just could not get past him. And I think Ducati may, they'll not take out from how many points they took from Jerez, but I think they may take out from how quick they were in the race. Um, and Dovi, yeah. again, Dovi, it's a very weak circuit for him. And he was, I think he was way quicker than any of us thought he would be um, in the race. That He was he looked on target mm. for a second before the, before the shit hit the fan um, towards Indeed. the end. Um, but yeah, on Marquez, I mean, as you say, it's, it's not necessarily been a circuit that he's gone well at in the past, but it's generally a circuit that the Hondas have gone well at. And we've seen Danny win there Indeed. a couple of times uh, in recent years. Um, but I think what's ominous from my point of view, Dre, is that Mark Marquez has had a, a, a complete blank, a, a race that he clearly had the pace to win in Argentina and came away with nothing from. And yet still, within two races of that, he's turned a serious deficit into a championship lead already and if we're looking at Dovi as his main title rival no matter how quick that Ducati is Mark Marquez has now got 24 points on him there's a good chance Dovi doesn't get those points back like we like we saw that Marquez was in enormous championship hole last I think it won 38 points down with nine to go um going into the summer break after he won at the Saxon ring so Marquez like 
you've you need a head start to beat Marquez over a season when he's feeling comfortable with the bike, like we saw to a degree last season. Like Marquez seems to be the only guy in the field who can win two or three rounds on the spin and just and just basically just read himself back into contention. No one else in the championship has been able to do that in the last two or three years, in my humble opinion. And he's, it's he's a, had the pace to win all four so far, hasn't he? Yeah, he he could have like. If if a, if he isn't an idiot in Argentina and he has an extra five horsepower in Qatar, he could have easily been a hundred for a hundred so far this season. And I, I still think, to be honest with you, if you if you'd offered him seventy seventy points out of the first hundred available in the first rounds, he'd probably take that. Especially given Argentina, he scored zero. Mm. I mean, second, first, first. Apart from that, it's getting to a point where Marcus doesn't have a bad round anymore. Like, like Argentina, his head had gone. And that's the only exception when he's been practically flawless everywhere else. And, like, again, this is a, this is an alarming sign. He won her ref comfortably. Uh, if there's one thing I mentioned on Twitter earlier this week that I said was reassuring, it's that Ducati were faster than I thought they were going to be. And that pretty much the whole, probably the whole form book suggested that uh, Ducati were going to be. They've, they've not gone well around her ref in recent years. And this year... They were competitive, especially Dovi, who was on the hard who was on the hard medium tire compared to Lorenzo, who gambled on softs. Um, I don't know how much of that came into play towards the end of that race, um, and it, I think it ended up Lorenzo being in front probably did a little bit more harm than good to the team overall in the long run. Mapping ain't anyone, but um, it's it it certainly was interesting to see the fact that you know Pedrosa. Again, I don't know how much of that is the wrist playing it, playing it because he's, he obviously you know we know he's not 100 still from that wrist injury. But Ducati was comfortably faster than Pedrosa on the day, and Marquez could only maybe get a tenth or two a lap out of Lorenzo when Lorenzo was on slightly fresher rubber. So it's I, I wouldn't be pressing the alarm bells just yet in the Ducati camp. They've, mm, they're like, they, they, they've got. A couple of good rounds coming up. I mean, we saw Dovi was completely dominant in Catalonia. That's three races array. You know, Bajello was was another very strong Dovi round. Like, if they like, they they got to be thinking damage limitation till we can get so we can get to Mugello next round. And if they are within 20, 25 points of Marquez after the summer break, after the Saxon ring, they'll still think there's hope. But they can't afford another major screw up. If they do. Like Dov- Dovi's probably out of contention if, if he ha- if he has one major DNF win related swing for Marquez. Um, uh, and, and, and I think from Marquez's it's, uh... point of view, I mean we're not we're not handing him the trophy just yet. And even if he wins next yeah. time out, we're not handing him the trophy. But I think if if Marquez wins at Le Mans, um, I, I think we really have to start having serious conversations about how early he's going to wrap this title up because much like he's only won once around Jerez, I think from memory, Drake, he's only won once at Le Mans as well, and that was the same season. Um, because in, mm. I mean, last year, of course, he, he crashed out of the race trying to keep up with that group of, of Yamahas with the, the two Petri boys and Zarco. Uh, the year before that, it was Lorenzo. Last year, it should have been the Yamaha 1-2 or factory Yamaha 1-2. The year before, it was with Lorenzo leading Rossi. Um, and yeah, Marquez won last time out in 14, um, the year that he won Quite right. everywhere. That's his, that's his only Le Mans win in the top flight. Mm. And that's another, um, that's another circuit with acceleration zones out of hairpins that should in theory play to the weaknesses rather than the strengths of that Honda so mm. if Mark Marquez wins there I'm starting to think we might be done it's like let, yeah like, as, as, as I mentioned before we went on the the snookers stage um, at that point because 
like that would be like the proof of concept to see that this Honda really has solved its problems of yesteryear where their yeah, corner exit speed was so bad that, you know, and again, Le Mans, Le Mans Bugatti circuit is very stop starty. There's not a lot of high speed corners in there. It's, it's very much a, a circuit of hard braking and um, exit speed is going to be very important um, on that sort of circuit. And Honda struggled around there in recent years. I mean, Marquez crashed from fourth, last year and Pedrosa was never in contention um at that race last year it became a fight between the three prolific Yamahas now of you know Maverick Valentino and Johan um so it's it's a, it, this is going to be a big smoking gun for Honda if they're good around here pop the pack, pack your bags we might already be done and mm. because it looks like it, like Marquez still said there's still something missing out of the front so he's, he's not feeling like it's his 2014 bike just yet but it's clearly a lot better than it was last year, given the, the relative comfort he's had in the last, arguably two, like three rounds, if you want to throw in Argentina, and just how much faster he was than everybody else around there, mm. um, which was just which was just terrifyingly quick. Um, but yeah, it's, it's 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 a proof of concept. If that Honda is fast around Le Mans, um, I'm, I'm, I'll be claiming match point because uh, that's. That's not that's not a good sign, and Marquez doesn't do donuts very often anymore in terms of, you know, crashing bikes in races. He just doesn't seem to have those days anymore. Like I, I don't get nervous watching him at the front anymore because he just doesn't tend to crash in a Grand Prix now. Hmm. So, it's it, it's a problem. Like Dovi being twenty four points back is bad enough. Um, like like Ducati's already almost out of breathing room already and that's not a good sign so Le Mans is going to be an absolutely critical round this year for me because I also want to see how Ducati hold up round there because this is a track that in theory should play up to them and with Yamaha not really being the threat they are going into this round as well next week that uh that they could be some dead points at the top for Yamaha if they are still as good as they were here last year mm. yeah yeah we'll talk about Yamaha a little bit more um, in a little bit. Well, yeah, let's talk Ducati. We we usually go through these roundups of MotoGP races in like the order of the race result, but we have to talk about the battle for second as it was at the time, rather than the man who finished second, John Zarco, who we'll talk about shortly. Um, the the incident itself, then. Um, we'll we'll talk about what this means for Ducati um, shortly. But in terms of the incident itself, um, Jorge Lorenzo was running in second place. Dovi had a few attempts to get past Lorenzo, um, and then. He, had a, he has to go into the dry sack hairpin, the Schumacher-Villeneuve corner for Formula 1 fans out there. <laughs> um, and they both run wide. Dobby runs wide, outbreaking himself. Lorenzo is forced to run wide with him. Um, Dobby then goes further past the corner. Lorenzo then sweeps back onto the apex to try and reclaim the racing line. Only he finds Danny Pedrosa in the way. Those two crash. Danny hightsides into the sky, whereas Lorenzo rebounds back into his teammate and all three of them go down and out of the race. Um... The one, the one funny thing out of it, I have to say, just while we're on the subject, was did anyone notice Dobby trying to remount, as he could be mentioned on Instagram, Dobby tried to remount on Lorenzo's bike, uh, <laughs> which, which was horrendous. Um, go to Dobby's Instagram. Those who haven't seen it, there's an image of Dobby I'm saying, I know something's not quite right here, I think is the caption, something like that. And you can see Dobby trying to remount on the Yamaha, which clearly, on the Ducati, which clearly has the 99 on the front. <laughs> Um, because the way the bikes have sort of came to rest, uh, Lorenzo's bike came to rest next to Dovi, and he tried to remount on that bike. Um, and I think that's what the Masters was trying to say. You got the wrong bike, Andrea, um, as he was trying to sort of remount and get back in the race. Um, but does anybody? I mean, it's very British to try to portion blame whenever something happens. So let's have a go of anyway. Um, but 
I, I struggle to put this down to anything more than a racing incident, Dre. I mean, uh, some mm. have been clean. Some have been keen. Like I think it was Dovi who put some blame on Pedroza um, because he he claimed that Pedroza sped up um, as Lorenzo was going back towards the apex rather than sort of he sort of basically <laughs> parked himself into a gap that was always going to disappear. Others blame Lorenzo for essentially chopping Danny's nose off. Um, afterwards, whether you agree with that or not, but I have to say I have some sympathy for for all three in this. Dobby basically made an attempt to an overtake and then was the unfortunate victim of two guys next to him crashing. Um, yeah. Lorenzo was just going back to the racing line, and whether he could quite see Danny on the inside is a moot point. We know that Danny couldn't see anyone because he was hanging off the right hand side of his bike, so there's no way he could have seen Lorenzo sweep back across. Um, I've got sympathy for all three on this, Dre. I think this was just a pure, perfect storm and a racing incident. What about you? Yeah, um, I'm now going to go through dramatic favourite book, Lemony Smicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. <laughs> um, and Because I think that's a pretty good way of summing this up. Um, yeah, I, 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 like, I, in, in real time, I thought Lorenzo came on the racing line again a little bit too quickly, but it's understandable mm. given that he was knocked wide by Dovi overcooking his brakes in the first place so mm. that like you can't really blame anybody for this one i think i think dovi was clutching at straws a little bit trying to apportion blame and you know lorenzo and pedrosa were fairly neutral they all i think they all kind of unanimous said yeah listen we're like the three cleanest dudes yeah. in the championship how can we possibly get this wrong um and yeah and up all three of them in the gravel and danny pedrosa turns into superman for a few yeah. seconds the um, unluckiest poor. guy in motorsport right now like the guy was he was he was he was, he was so unfortunate in Argentina where he gets overtaken by Zarco and pushed onto a wet patch which high sides him and breaks his wrist. He's still mm. kind of recovering from that at the moment, and then yeah, he he is the innocent victim of two Ducatis who basically engage in friendly fire, and he gets torpedoed out of the race. It's this guy has no luck. This guy just like not only no luck in terms of what happens to him in races, but every time he seems to get taken out or crash in a race, he always gets hurt. Luckily, this time, he was able to walk away from this one. Apparently, a slightly damaged groin. Make your own jokes about ego and uh, a, a bruised groin area there for Marisa. But uh, no, like you can't really blame anyone for this one. Dovi clearly was getting frustrated at not being able to pass Lorenzo. I, I saw comments from Dovi along the lines of saying that Lorenzo was deliberately riding slowly through apexes so that Dovi couldn't find a way through. Um, and Dovi was basically sick and tired of Lorenzo's shit, basically. Yeah, and he the thought, honeymoon's it. over there. Yeah, I'd, if it wasn't already, it yeah. sure as hell is now. Um, but uh, yeah, Dovi, he tried. I mean, we all know Dovi's riding style. He's the last of the late breakers. Um, he was going to try a lunge into turn six. That's the best overtaking opportunity on the circuit. Mm. Um, he tried turn six. He overcooked it a tab. And the natural thing to do when you're pushed out wide on a hairpin is to square the corner off. So you're going to you're gonna try and, and Lorenzo, you're going to try and lean it in, in as narrow as you can and try and get back on the racing line, uh, which is in this case, straight ahead towards the next corner anyways, as narrow off as you can. Now, I, I have to give props to BT Sport on this one. They debuted a new, totally not Sky F1, Sky Hub style analysis yeah. booth in the back um, and analyzed the incident. And, and, you know, Hodson made a very good point. He used the modern day rider style and he showed that Lorenzo probably didn't see Pedrosa because of his peripheral vision. And the fact, again, he's, his head's pretty much on the ground when you're leaning that deeply into the corner. And we he know Danny didn't see Jorge either. Of course. Like, it would be impossible for Danny to see Lorenzo from that angle. And, like, Pedrosa took took his normal line. So you can't blame Pedrosa for doing what 
an opportunity with both Ducatis ran, running wide. Why wouldn't you just hug the inside and try and take them both? Um, again, natural thing to do. Lorenzo probably didn't see Pedrosa. He says he didn't see Pedrosa, and I'm willing to take his word for it on that. And just didn't see Pedrosa. They come together, obviously realizing too late when, when you know, the collision course they're on. They get banged. Dovi, who's just trying to recover from his mistake, he gets taken out as collateral. And of course, Pedrosa goes flying over the front of his bike for the second time in three rounds. Um, God hates Danny Pedrosa. He must have he must have like crashed a truck into a hall of mirrors when he was a child or something. Um, I do I do not understand how Pedrosa is this unlucky. It was an awful accident to watch in real time. Luckily, all three guys only with damaged egos more than anything else, thankfully. But uh, um, a, 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 a incident that effectively handed the race to Mark Marquez, even if it uh, might have already been over. But that absolutely cemented it. The second, third and fourth in the race all taking each other out at the same time and giving Johan Zarco the easiest, part, the easiest podium he will ever get in his Grand Prix career. Mm. Uh, we have to talk about what this kind of means both short and long term for Ducati. Uh, starting with Lorenzo, who, um, as pointed out on our Discord server earlier in the week, he is now 20th in the championship. He has six points from four races. He's now behind Mika Calio in the world championship. Um, now, Yikes. it's, I, I think, and it, it might again sound harsh, given that he was actually more competitive this weekend than he has been at any stage of the season. I think this was another race and another incident that spells the end for Jorge Lorenzo at Ducati. And the reason I say that is um, because I referenced it earlier on. This was this was Valencia 2017 Jorge coming to play. And I'm not saying he should have let, let Davizioso through because it's only race four. Um, but there was no question that Ducati's only chance of winning that race, if they had one, was, was Dobby. Dobby was the guy with the late race pace. He came from mm-hmm. a second or so back, caught that group that were uh, at the time fighting for the lead. That became the fight for second. And Dobby could see Marquez getting away, knew he had to get on with it, was trying to get past his teammate, but just couldn't do it um, because Lorenzo was so good um, under breaking and so difficult to overtake. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the point I'm essentially making, Dre, is that Jorge Lorenzo is nowhere near, he's not competitive often enough for Ducati to stick with him. And even when he is competitive, he's only complicating the issue for their real championship challenger. Yeah, and Lorenzo is too inconsistent for for Ducati to have consistent faith in him to to, to deliver them results. Like Ducati, I'm sure could live with Lorenzo's and if he was up the front on a regular basis, he isn't. Like he's he's only got six points so far this season, even before this race happened. And, and this would have been he is up there. He's stuffing his own teammate. Yeah, uh, which we which we kind of saw in Sepang last year. We saw it at Valencia at the end of last season. And we saw it again here where Lorenzo, you can make the case, was being counterproductive, um, effectively harming his own team by letting Marquez get away at the front and not being able to realize that, hey, Dovi's the faster man right now. You're probably going to have to let him through for him to have any chance of winning the Grand Prix. But Ducati, I don't think, want the PR disaster no. of giving their giving their star rider team orders again in yeah, race I mean, four I, of the I season. Don't, I, don't, I, want to be, it's clear, I don't blame Jorge Lorenzo at all for the way he rode no, last I, Sunday. I, I don't blame him at all. He wanted to try and finish second. He probably thought in his half hearts, maybe I can still win this. But it's, it's more the more reason for Ducati to have to just have a word for themselves and think this, this, this current configuration, this current um, team lineup we've got, isn't working for that very reason. We need someone else. If, if Dobby's our guy, if Dobby's the guy that's going to win as a world championship if the bike works for him, 
then we need a guy on the other bike who is going to help Dobby do so. And it's clear that Jorge Lorenzo doesn't have the doesn't have the competitiveness, nor the will, nor the sort of appetite to play that supporting role. No, he doesn't. And this is and what we Ducati mentioned. And if Ducati cut him and Ducati make this decision mm. early on in the season to get someone else in, we know that Jorge is not going to help Dobby then. Of course not. Then this is exactly the scenario we talked about in our season preview going into this season. We we said Ducati might have a situation if Lorenzo comes good, he's going to be problematic for Dovi winning the title because there's a chance that Lorenzo will take points off him. And we saw that happen this past weekend. Lorenzo is too good and too competitive, you know, basically to help Dovi win the title at optimum level. But he's also not got the temperament. He's not a Jensen Button. He's not a Rubens Barrichello. He's not a team player. Where he's going to, yeah, his ego and his will to win will not allow him to step aside and give Dovi every possible chance of winning the title. We saw it at Valencia last year. Lorenzo ignored blatant team orders to let Dovi Davizioso through. Now, if you if uh, if ever you want to blame Lorenzo for that, is ultimately down to you. That's that's a personal opinion of whether you ever have me. Depends where you stand on the team orders fence. But no matter which way you slice it, Lorenzo is not obligated to follow those orders. The problem is it's counterproductive to what Ducati are going to do because the right right now the only man on a Ducati that's got the the cojones to challenge Marquez is Dovi. And if Lorenzo keeps doing this, neither of them are going to win the championship. And Marquez will sail off into the distance like we saw with Yamaha a couple of years ago. It's the exact same scenario when Lorenzo was at Yamaha. They were both trying to chase down Marquez and they beat each other up so bad, it allowed Marquez to somehow win the title three hmm. rounds early. Amazing how that one turned out in the end. It is. And as far as Dobby's concerned then... Uh, he- I guess it depends whether you're glass half full or glass half empty um, with Andrea Davizioso because I, I said last week that I was going to give you a very close eye on Ducati and how competitive they were because they didn't seem to be any better around their weaker tracks um, than they were last year. They weren't any more competitive around Cota or around Argentina than they were a year ago. Um, now, it has to be said, they were much closer to the front and to winning the race this time than they were last year when... Pedroza and Marquez were a street ahead of Lorenzo in third last year. Um, mm. Now, obviously, they got a podium last year. They didn't this year. But from Andre Davizioso's point of view, Dre, he's never had as much of a fourth place around Jerez. I mean, this is probably mm-hmm. his worst track of all. Um, fifth is his best result in the Premier Class in a MotoGP race at Jerez. Yet, it was pretty clear on pure pace, he looked like he had the pace to finish a safe second um, had he not mm-hmm. got involved with his teammates. So... If your glass half empty, Davizioso's lost a handful of points they might not get back. If your glass half full, both Dobby and Ducati were more competitive than perhaps we expected around one of their weaker tracks. Which camp are you in? Um, I'm in the glass half full camp on this one because Dovi was taken out in Argentina last year by Alicia Spargaro and it didn't seem to hurt his title ambitions too much. Mm. The only problem to that was was that Marquez also had a DNF in Argentina this time last year as well, which is effectively the same scenario here. Mm. Only this time, Marquez has got a 24-point advantage over Dovi and not the other way around. Um, Dovi has always started the season strong. He did it even two years ago when he first joined Ducati again with the GP16. And, you know, he had a three second places to start the year. So Dovi tends to start the season very well. He tends to drift off towards the end. Um, so if if I'm in the Ducati camp right now, I would 
little bit of solace in the fact that the bike was again faster than people had anticipated. This was by a mile Dovi's best sheer performance for a Ducati or for any bike he's had around around Hareth in general. Because to be competitive um, around Hareth, you need a good handling bike. Exactly, you need a bike that can turn, a bike that can handle, and that's exactly what. Ducati he was able to do here. They were going toe-to-toe with, with Pedrosa, and Marquez was only maybe a tenth or two a lap quicker in, in ultimate trim. Um, they were, they, they're qualifying let Dovi down in the end because that's what ultimately lost him the time and didn't spend enough time in that leading group was because he had to come from eighth on the grid. Um, just had to start from the middle of row three to get into, into contention, essentially. But yeah, no matter which way you slice it, Ducati were a bit better here than I think the form book suggested. Um and that is a positive sign to take going forward. It looks like their bike is a bit more of an all-rounder. Um, whether that plays out the same in other rounds later in the year, like maybe in Austria, where they're traditionally very strong. Mm, Mugello too, coming up. Uh, or Mugello coming up in a couple of rounds' time remains to be seen. I want to see how Ducati does in their bank rounds and whether, whether they absolutely blow the field out again or, or whether Honda has made gains on their weaker circuits as well. Because we've not really seen that scenario play out just yet. Uh, but the way it's gone so far this year... Marquez has done a much better job in recovering bad situations compared to Dovi so far in the last season and a half, you could say. So, mm. and what, yeah, what it's, may, it's going to be interesting. What may concern Ducati as well is that they, you could, you could argue away. I think it's taking a bit away from Dovi by saying this, but you could argue that part of Dovi's success last year was his ability to master the unpredictability of the Michelins last year, which perhaps mm. we don't have that same unpredictability this year. Um, which may make it a little harder for the master of tyre management to pull off what he did last year, particularly at places like Catalunya and Silverstone. Mm. But we shall see um, as the year goes on. Ducati certainly um, were competitive at Jerez, even though they didn't convert it into the points they probably should have done. Uh, the big beneficiary of that, and there were a few of them, because a lot of riders suddenly gained three spots by what happened uh, up the front midway through the race. Uh, the main beneficiary was Joan Zarco, who was the fastest Yamaha rider by a considerable margin all weekend um qualified on the front row of the grid which i think is the third time he's done that now in as many races mm-hmm. um this year also the third time of the season because he was on pole for the first race of the season um mm-hmm. in in qatar and he is now dre as amazing as this sounds um ktm's newest rider he is the nearest challenger to mark marquez he is only 12 points off the overall series lead um, which for an independent rider on a tech three yamaha is an incredible achievement it is indeed. He's, he just refuses to go away. This another two second places so far this season. Another um, well earned podium. Just kept his nose clean. Didn't get into any major trouble. And sometimes you'll reap the rewards of an attrition based race. And that's what happened here in Haref. I mean, to finish first, first you have to finish, and that and that's part of the battle out here. And yes, a little bit lucky with the three guys in front of him. And you can you can probably throw Carl Crutchlow into that into that big mix as well because mm. he was running ahead. He was in the leading group when he fell off as well, but they fell off. That's the whole point. Um, you know, Zarko will take whatever he's going to be given. And in general, he's like, he, the, like the form he had through last season has continued. He looks every bit as impressive as everybody else does. I mean, he's got an eight point lead on Maverick Vinales in the championship, his nearest fellow Yamaha rider. He has 18 points in hand on Valentino Rossi. Um, who is having a dog's dinner of a season so far by his standards. So 
like again, when you talk a lot about Yamaha's struggles, it doesn't seem to be bothering Johan Zarco so much. He's 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 finding ways of making it work. He's not again. He's kept his nose dry pretty much all season long. He, the only real mistake he made was probably running too soft the compound in 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 Qatar and costing him dearly towards the end of that race. Besides that, he's been fantastic all season long. He's been competitive and and he's been in leading groups for the majority of the season so far, and he's done a very, very good job. And the way this season's played out where almost everybody's had at least one bad round in capacity, there is something to be said about just being consistently good, and that's where Zarko is at the moment. Mm. And he seems to be the one Yamaha rider you could actually hang your hat on to to be up the front and consistently <laughs> getting a result, which is, which is incredible. And I don't know about you, Drake, I've just got this image of like if we if we look at historically where the Yamahas are good, I've just got this image of Joan Zarco and Monster Yamaha Tech Three at both the rider and the team's home Grand Prix. I I, I, I desperately want them to convert this into a win uh, at Le Mans next weekend. I think if there's a place where Zarco and Tech Three are going to get a win, they like in terms of the fairy tale outcome, it's Le Mans. But I think in terms of competitiveness, it's Le Mans. Yeah, I completely agree. Zarco was only a half second off the victory last year. It was it was until arguably maybe Valencia. That was the closest Zarco would come to a win. And that was the first time he looked like Zarco could have won a race on merit. Imagine um, the reaction at Le Mans if that happens. He finished second last year and 110,000 mad Frenchmen, you could hear them audibly chant, Zarco, yeah. Zarco. The place when came unglued when Louis Rossi won in the Moto3 race a few years ago in the, as a home winner. You know, that's yeah. that's the kind of support we're talking about. You know, they really get behind their own riders. Um, and I, I think he's got a real shot at it next weekend. We'll, we'll preview that on, on next week's show, um, the French Grand Prix, which is coming in a week's time. Um, but yeah, Jean Zarco is second in the World Championship at the moment. Um, that's a position that, um, as Dre mentioned, could arguably have gone to Carl Crutchlow had he converted his pace and his pole position uh, into some points. But um, it seems like an age ago, doesn't it, Dre, now that we were talking about Carl Crutchlow as the championship leader and, and a real front-running threat in MotoGP. I mean, it seems in the last two races that the old Carl Crutchlow has returned, all the potential in the world, but just unable to convert it into points, unable to see the checkered flag without crashing. Don't doubt me? Question mark. Um, yeah, it's. I think, uh, I think you made the point, didn't you, on Twitter? This is why we doubt you, Cal. Yes, because for every win, there is back-to-back DNFs. That is the Cal Crutchlow roller coaster experience. He is Rostrum um, Hospital. Yes, it's it's, and that's you're never going to win a championship riding like that. You're just not. And the, it's the sport is too competitive. There are too many guys who can win Grand Prix now. And you're, you're like, Crutchlow needs to wind it down a notch because, like, again, as you say, the capability is more than there. The speed is there. He was fantastic in qualifying in her F. Was, again, a quarter second clear than, than anybody else. He was, yeah, he, he was the only guy who could ride set to four like, like his life depended the on The fastest it. ever two wheel lap of her F. Yeah. Uh, again, he was brilliant in Argentina. He won that very tight dogfight with Johan Zarco, who was desperate for his first victory. Crutchlow held him off. He's always gone well in Argentina. He was above average in Qatar as well, but now he's had back-to-back DNFs, and he openly admitted he overrode the bike um, during the race. He overheated the front tyre, was trying to compensate by putting spinning up the rears a bit more. Front tyre overheats, loses it. It's a classic RF turn one incident. That, is, that corner catches more people out than anybody else on the calendar, you could argue. And that was a classic RF turn one drop from Cal. I'm just like, this is why we doubt you, Cal, because 
for every brilliant moment, there is two or three moments of lunacy. And this was another one of those cases for Cal. He's, he's better than what his results are showing so far this season. Like, I think for sheer overall speed, I think this is the best I've ever seen Cal over a season so far. Mm. But it's a results league more than anything else now, especially in this in this highly competitive era of MotoGP now, where back-to-back DNFs may now end your chances of, of, of winning the championship now. That's how bad it is. You can't afford to have more than two or three retirements. And there will be more from Cal, because that's just the sort of rider he is. He's the classic example between him and Marquez is where the difference is Marquez knows where the line is. Cal doesn't seem to know that yet, and that's probably the one thing that's holding him back. And it's a shame because, again, the speed is there. I've not seen Crutchlow ride this quickly ever in his MotoGP career. But if you're not bringing the bike home, then what's the point? Mm. And and what's what I find really interesting as well is that there was so much talk pre-race of well, is Cal Crutchlow perhaps going to be Repsol Honda's second rider next year? I know BT Sport were perhaps more keen than most to peddle that potential theory. Um, mm. But not only was that the, the reason why, and I know Danny didn't finish the race either, but not only was that the reason why so many doubt Cal, but that's the reason why Danny Pedrosa is so highly rated within Repsol Honda, because he does not mm. do that. He 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 banks the points. Um, you know, He gets to the finish. Um, and he's two, he's, you know, he's, okay, he's only had two seventh places this year. Um, but he's also had two DNFs that were not his fault at all, where he would probably have been on the podium had those not gone against him. Danny Pedrosa mm. is that safe pair of hands, whereas Cal Crutchlow is, you know, he's feasting or famine. You don't quite know what you're going to get from him from one race to the next. Um, he could quite easily be on pole position. He could quite easily uh, crash out of the race, and he did it both uh, in one weekend last time out. Um, one team who are having a good season, quite quietly under the radar so far, are Pramac Ducati, who... Mm have now been in the top five in three of the four races we've had so far. Petrucci was fifth in Qatar. Jack Miller was fourth from pole in Argentina. And now Danilo Petrucci um, has come through to finish fourth this time around. Um, Strong weekend for them. And and again, they're a team under the radar who are doing a very, very solid job. And both riders have got their own motivations for doing what they're doing at the moment. Um, Jack Miller, who's perhaps got an outside shot at getting the second factory Ducati ride next season, although he's currently penciled in to ride at Pramac. And Daniel Petrucci, he's riding for a spot on the grid full stop. And he's doing a very good job of of keeping his name in the shop window. Yeah, I mean, you look at the championship right now, Miller is in eight points, Petrucci two points back on 34. The only dudes ahead of them are the real heavy hitters, the perennial top contenders in MotoGP. I mean, they're ahead of Pedrosa, for sure, and Alex Rins, who, again, the results don't tell the full story with him and Lorenzo, is obviously way down the order, but ahead of him, Crutchlow, Rossi, Dovi, Iannone, Maverick, Johan, and Mark. Now, besides Johan, they have third in the team's championship, Dre. They're only yeah. behind Movistar Yamaha, who, for some unknown reason, lead it, um, and Repsol Honda, who are second. They're ahead of Tech 3, they're ahead of Suzuki, they're ahead of the factory Ducati team. Yeah, like, they are doing an incredible job, because you know what? They've not had a DNF in a race so far. They've they finished in the top ten all but on one occasion, and that was Danilo's twelfth at Cota. They've they've kept again. They've kept their noses dry. They've not made any mistakes at all. Um, really, they've got two solid riders in there. Jack Miller has become the beacon of consistency. This was his seventh consecutive top ten finish, dating back through last season. Like Miller, all of a sudden has now become top contender to replace. Lorenzo at Ducati now, going into the press and who you believe in the media. And Petrucci has got every reason to ride hard because 
we all know that he's he's leaving the team at the end of the season for for Peko Baniaia, and he's he needs a job for next year. So they, those two are doing everything right. They're not making any mistakes, and they're just they're just getting it done. They're doing what they need to do. And yeah, you know, again, like the way it's going so far this season, like I said, so many major guys have had screw ups so far this year. Which is probably the reason why Repsol Honda aren't leading the team title because Petrosa's had two unfortunate DNFs. Mm. But yeah, when when like those when they're not having those big races where they're making key mistakes or they're, or they're finishing with no points, they're just not making any mistakes. And yeah, that's that's the key to Tech Free or not Tech Free, sorry, Pramac being where they are at the moment. Mm, a very very good season for them um, so far. You might have noticed we skipped a position. Let's pretend we planned it and we didn't forget to mention Andre Idoni who finished third. Um, but, um, <laughs> but let's let's talk Suzuki and. It's funny how the tide has turned in that team, isn't it? I mean, Alex Rins looks all but certain to sign a two-year contract with that team, and he could understand why. I mean, he's not necessarily banked the points this season, but he has been very, very competitive so far, and he's doing a cracking job in terms of his pace, even though he's not necessarily yeah. converting it. Um, but it's amazing how in two weekends, Dre, the pendulum has swung completely the other way towards Andrea Iannone, who has now had back-to-back rostrum finishes, and I, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that's the first time in his career he's done this uh, in MotoGP, that he's had back-to-back rostrums um, in, in the MotoGP class. Um, it's not like the first time he's done it with Suzuki. Um, and it's the, this... top, it's the first time in his top-flight career period he's had back-to-back yeah. podiums regardless of team. Yes, yeah. an, an incredible turnaround for the, for the guy who... Um, has been under pressure, not for the first time in his time at Suzuki, um, based on the fact that Rins was outpacing him in Qatar. Um, but for a guy who looked like he was racing for his career a few years ago, and looked like he was virtually out of the door at Suzuki, he suddenly turned it right around. He has turned it around, and it's like the, the, the press reports have read very positively. Um, and if I'm it's... Suzuki now, I'm thinking twice about getting rid of him. Yeah, like apparently now it's like the odds of him sticking around about 30% now, according to Matt Oxley's blog on Motorsport Magazine, saying, yeah, at the moment, it's looking a lot, you know, it's looking a lot like, you know, he's found something here. He's apparently he's tweaked his riding style. He's taken, bought, taken on board a lot more of a, of a Suzuki's advice and yeah, just trying to... You know, just find something to make this spike work, and it's it's working. It is working. He beat Petrucci over the line in a straight dogfight for the last podium spot. Um, the speed's always been there with Ioni. That's always been a thing, and he seems to be able to get his head there and get on with it. Now, it's looking like he might end up sticking around there, despite them courting Jorge Lorenzo. It's funny how, again, the tables have turned that, you know, Iannone's now fourth in the championship and not a million miles away from the top of the board, while Alex Rins has only finished one race, despite it being a podium finish. Hmm. He's got three other DNFs. No one else has had three crashes in races so far this season, and Rins has been a disappointment. It's hmm. very weird how that's turned out. And the team deserve a lot of credit as well, don't they? I mean, they they were Absolutely. they were first and second in FP4, um, you know, and Rins um, at Jerez, which immediately took my people sit and take notice that wow, this team have some real race pace behind them. They've now got three podiums in three races um, of the Suzuki team. If you add the Rins podium in Argentina to the two that you know mm-hmm. had in the previous uh, two races. Um, and it's interesting because they're now in a position where once again, they look like they're going to lose their concessions again. Um, they're, I believe, they're three concession points away. I think they need to get to six concession points to lose 
uh, these concessions that they have, and you get one for a third place, two for a second, and three for a win. So if you if, if Suzuki win a race, they immediately lose um, their ability to test. They won't lose their engine allowance for the year because that cannot be changed mid-season. So they will keep their allowance of nine engines to the end of the year. Um, mm-hmm. But they're perhaps they if they win in Le Mans, they'll immediately forfeit any chance of testing um, outside of the normal sort of allowance of tests that the factories ahead of them have got. Um, but they they've earned this, haven't they? There's no question that they've earned the spot that they're in. And the mistakes that they made pre 2017 that created the problems they had last year, where they made the wrong, they basically made mistakes with their engine that they put together and they were unable to change it because of the homologation. They've mm-hmm. rectified them for this season, and they're all of a sudden right back in the mix, right back kind of where they were pre-2017 when Vinales was on the bike. Indeed, it looks like they've gone back to that sort of, you know, maybe we have the best bike in the field sort of contender at the moment now, where it looks like they just overall have a very strong package, and they have two riders who, again, if they're clued in, can finish on the podium. They both, We both have written proof of that. Rins has been in leading groups despite his mistakes in race, and, you know, and he seems to have screwed his head back on at last. So, yeah, the way it's going right now, they seem to have a very good all-round package, one that apparently, according to Neil Hodson, a lot of guys are liking the paddock because it seems to be a very easy bike to ride. Um, they seem to have got their homologation for their engine sorted. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of positive upswing at the moment in that Suzuki camp, and they have every right to be there. They've, they've got... The potential is there, even if the points don't necessarily show it, especially in the case of Rins. But Ian Oni's looks like he's finally becoming the team Peter Suzuki expected him to be. Mm. Um, let's uh, take a very deep breath and try and de- decode what's going on then at Movistar Yamaha. Valentino Rossi finished fifth um, last weekend, which was um, the mother of all, um, you know, painting over a bad job, papering over the cracks. Um, and I have to say, if I was sitting on a chair, I think I'd have fallen off it when I saw the team's championship and the fact that they're leading it at the moment. Um, they're leading the team's <laughs> championship by two points from Repsol Honda, mainly because, mainly because, with the exception of the the one DNF that you all know about, Rossi's collision with Marquez in Argentina, they've scored points with both riders at every race so far, which I don't think any other team has done. Um, and of course, they've had a couple of podiums, Mavericks in Texas and Rossi's at the opening round in Qatar. Um but are we approaching crisis time with this team? I mean, they. If, let's let's ignore Juan Zarco for just a minute. I know you can't ignore him because he's showing them up on a two-year-old version of the same bike. But if, <laughs> that's if a you, big if. But if you purely base this on factory teams and factory bikes, you're right in what you say. Suzuki have the third best bike, and the Yamaha's the fourth. Yeah, like on 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 sheer merit alone, right? The best of the field that. It- isn't the factory Honda and Ducatis. Um, and what does that say about to... Yamaha? It's this, like I said, I mentioned this before we went on the show, it looked like they have now gone 14 consecutive races since their last victory, which was Valentino Rossi at Assen last year. We're almost now a full calendar year, a full MotoGP calendar season, you could argue, since Yamaha's last win, which is even more alarming when you consider the last two seasons of MotoGP have arguably been the most competitive in modern history. So, like, despite, in, in theory, an easier field, per se, um, they're not winning. They, they don't seem to have the upside where they can win. Um, they, just, they don't seem to have any sort of outside, you know, outright pace where they can win or take a Grand Prix by the scruff of the neck. 
Lamont is going to be the, a real big test for him. We'll obviously talk about it on next week's show. But Lamont is going to be a massive test, given that last year they were the they were dominant around there. All three of their of the mainstay Yamaha staple of Vinales, Rossi, and Zarco all competed for that victory, and they were all just trading fastest laps for twenty seven um, circulations of the Bugatti circuit. But it, this is an unmitigated disaster. Like Lynn Jarvis's hot seat is probably on fire right mm. now because to underline like, your point, Movistar Yamaha have won the last three around Le Mans, and had, yeah, had Rossi not crashed at the end of last year's race, it would have been three consecutive one twos there. Yeah, this is their strongest circuit on calendar. Jorge Lorenzo used to dominate round here. He was virtually unbeatable round Le Mans in 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 the past. Um, <sighs> This is massive. This is like this is the test. This is a track where a win for them there is practically automatic. So um it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to say this, but like no at, at the moment, I mean I said like fourteen consecutive non victories. Maverick's now gone an, an, a full season since his last victory now, more or less. And this is a guy that showed so much promise at the start of last season, and he's just not able to string together a, 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 a good form of results. I don't know how much of that is down to him and how much of that is down to a bike that is just fundamentally flawed at the moment. But as it stands right now, like this is a disaster. Like given Yamaha's in, like incredibly high standards, like this is insane. This is awful for them right now. Like I said, if if you're if I'm Lynn Jarvis, I'm fearing for my job because. They are not going to tolerate three consecutive years of getting beaten by Marquez and, four, you know, basically five out of the last titles not going to them. Mm, so, and, and I'm struggling to think. I think this is the least competitive Yamaha have been since before Valentino Rossi first joined them. Because yeah. ever, ever since Valentino Rossi joined them in 2004, you pretty much, you'd struggle to have gone to a race since then where you wouldn't have, you'd, you'd have practically written off Yamaha's chances of winning the race. You'd have, you'd have pretty much thought, well, Rossi's bound to pull something out and they might chance for a win and even when Rossi left Lorenzo took up the reins and dominated for a couple of years with them but I can't remember the last time we actually went to a race weekend where we were wondering if Yamaha could even get on the podium with either rider and and perhaps their biggest problem at the moment is I mean if we accept that they're in a big hole and they need to try and fix it how are they going to fix it Dre because it seems pretty clear from what you hear from both of their riders that both Valentino Rossi and Maverick Vinales have completely different theories on how to fix the problem. So which direction do you go in when you're developing, trying to develop your way out of a hole? Which rider do you listen to? Um, uh, um, good luck with that, yeah. Lynn. Because um, you've made your baby Valentino. You keep giving him all these extensions. And like I said, like, are you going to tell Valentino no? Uh, like, and we, like, I don't know if you saw his post-race comments after her ref, but... This was one of those times where Rossi, for the first time in a while, used his substantial clout to mm. criticise the team. He doesn't normally do that. Normally, he's very diplomatic. I know it's kind of weird to say that about Valentino, but if there's one thing he's diplomatic about, it's his team. He will often take responsibility if he has a bad day. Um, but he said straight up, we've spent two years of, the, of development on this bike for nothing. Valentino Rossi has not been competitive um, chasing a title now since 2015 and he's not looked anywhere near that since Maverick has not turned out to be the guy that they reckoned that he, he was going to be as a Lorenzo replacement and again as you mentioned they they both have significant issues but they both have different theories on what the problem is Rossi seems to be blaming the electronics 
which is funny because at Cota, they seem to take a step forward in that regard and had their best result of the season so far, of a second and a fourth. Um, one round later, they're like again, Rossi is now saying 75% of the team's problems are with the electronics. Meanwhile, Maverick is complaining that the bike doesn't have enough edge. So they both have two fundamentally different problems with the bike right now. So where do you go from here? Like, like does, does Lynn Jarvis want to be, want to, does, does he want to be picking sides politically speaking right now? I don't think I'd want to go down that road of, of trying to favor one rider over the other where you've got a bike that is seemingly fundamentally flawed and doesn't seem to be suiting anybody right now, let alone trying to find a way to pick one to go all in on to, to, to help the title out here. And let's be honest, it's probably going to be Valentino that gets to help because he's Valentino. Mm. So this is the problem when you have one juggernaut figure in a team, a arguably slightly faster teammate when the bike goes well, but Rossi's the better damage limitation guy and probably a bit more of a natural fit to win a championship. So it's... It is a mess. It is a hot mess at Yamaha, and I don't think there's a, there's a quick fix. No. So, I mean, um, as Valentino Rossi says, they they seem to over the last two years basically developed themselves down a blind alley. Um, and you know, how can they go from having a bike that looked like it could win any race if their riders could get their act together in 2016? And of course, mm-hmm. they the great all rounder. Yeah, and they had the championship ball to themselves in 2015 to to where they are now. How can they get it so wrong? It sort of reminds me of McLaren back in the sort of 2011-2012 days of Formula 1, where in 2012 they probably had the best all-round car in the field, and then they haven't won a race since because they've just developed themselves into into a hole and not got themselves out of it since. And look how mm. long it's taken them to get out of it. They still haven't. Um, and, and I worry with Yamaha, like, this is no quick fix we're talking about with this team and with this bike um, to get them out of trouble. And they're not going to be able to sit on Joan Zarco to dig them out of a hole and get some results for the factory and for the, the bike. Uh, beyond the end of this season. Um, so th- there are problems at that team. Um, Maverick Vinales says, you know, that Jerez showed us the reality of the bike, i.e. where they actually are, because he said he was positive leaving Austin, but now he actually thinks that we've, they've got a genuine idea of where their bike is. Uh, and he says mm. we had to ride 110% just to finish seventh. Um, and Valentino Rossi nice. was similarly scathing of the team. He said, I spoke a lot with them and said some very hard things. I like to work with them and I trust them. And even though I know this is a difficult moment for them, I'm hoping that saying these words will give them more motivation. Monday wasn't the day to make the change, talking about the Monday test at Jerez, but the next months will be very important. Months, plural. So he's clearly um, talking about it as if it's going to be a long-term uh, road to recovery for this team. Um, and yeah, they're in real trouble. And as you say, if, 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 if we're even serious about either rider winning the championship this season, which I'm not so sure we are, um, Maverick Vinales so. Maverick Vinales still remains the fastest rider when the bike works but it's clear as Jerez proved once again when the bike doesn't Valentino Rossi is by far the stronger of the two uh, and he's able <laughs> to limit the damage so you know if neither rider is able to nail it in both conditions i.e. when the bike is strong and when it isn't neither rider are going to win the world championship this season so this is a team no. in serious serious trouble and Lamoni is going to tell us an awful lot about where they are. Uh, before we move on to the lower classes, we have to talk about a couple of riders um, who impressed last weekend. Um, Franco Morbidelli being one, Drake, uh, the Moto2 champion, who's 
in some ways been outshone um, by one or two of the other rookies so far. Sayarin, I think, has earned a lot of praise, quite rightly, given how little prep he had for this season. Uh, and Nakagami has perhaps shown up more often as the faster of the rookies. Um, mm-hmm. But what a strong result that was for Franco Bobadelli, who qualified well um, as well. I think he was on the fifth row of the grid and finished in ninth position and was ahead of Maverick Vinales for a lot of the race too. Yeah, again, overall, he was just very fast. Like, even if you take the attrition that were factored in, that factored into the race, um, if you take that off the table, he was fast in order to find. He very nearly snuck into Q2 um, as well. It was, a, it was a more competitive Q1 than I think Dovi and Vinales are expecting, yeah. for sure. Um, I, don't, I don't think they expected Paul Spagaro and, you know, Frankie Morbidelli to, you know, knock on the door like that and, you know, uh, very nearly sneak into that Q2 session and force them to a force them onto a, a row five start, which would have been an unmitigated disaster for either of those two. But yeah, like this, this was a fast weekend for Frankie all the way across the board. Um, we, I've, I've spoken about often the challenge that he often has, obviously riding a Honda, and we all know that it's not the most user friendly bike in the world. Um, probably, a, I don't think there would have been a more challenging bike to ride. Um, as a rookie coming into MotoGP than the Honda, but he's he's making it work. He's finished in the points three out of the first his three out of his first four MotoGP races. This was his first top ten in ninth place again ahead of some very fast and some very experienced riders in the field on the day as well. Um, finished ahead of all three KTM's, which again very strong result. Like again, you can't fault that. I mean, I, I'd like to. I'm still at the good point where I'd like to see Frankie on a slightly more comfortable bike, so I could see what he could really do. But the signs are definitely trending positive for him. And to be fair, as of Taka, as well, who had his best finish of the season so far in 12th, as well, that was a, a solid result for Taka on the second LCR. So yeah, the Honda the Honda rookies are doing well for sure. Mm, they are, and and just rounding up on on MotoGP glass. Um, KTM and and Mika Calio, who was the first of them across the line uh, in tenth. Bradley Smith was the leader of the three for most of the race, and then faded late on to finish behind his two teammates. Um, first of all, on Calio, um, another impressive result. He was. We have to add in. He was on what was essentially a development version, essentially the first sort of test prototype of their 2019 KTM. Um, mm-hmm. which shows just how far ahead teams plan these days, that that's already essentially next year's bike that Calio was on, mm-hmm. and it seemed to work. Um, he finished 10th. Um, but also for the team, who perhaps were not as far up the field as we thought they'd be in early in the season, based on the progress they made last season. But this was certainly their best result and best showing so far. Yes, there was a lot of attrition elsewhere that promoted them up the order. Um, but if we look at last year's Spanish Grand Prix for KTM, Bradley Smith was 14th, the first KTM home. In fact, the only KTM that finished last season. He was 47 seconds behind the winner. This year, Mika Calio on the first of the KTMs, only 16 seconds off the winner. Yeah, um, quite right. As I said, this, this, was, this was strong from KTM. This, that, it seems they have a more consistent overall bike this year it looks like they've got they've got something here that's they're showing improvement and like if Kayo's cracking the top 10 that's a very good sign because ktm didn't do that very often last year the cynic um, would say what would john zarko got out of that bike um apparently more than what paul could have done his agent but um yeah like like, like a nice response there from mika Kayo to lead the charge you again like let me not understate the value of what mika Kayo brings to that team mm. um yeah, like he like and many people will tell you test riders are important and Calio has had a key hand in that bike's development 
from the very start. Um, and it shows. Like He wants to go racing again. Like, he's made it quite clear, despite all the wildcard appearances, he wants to go racing again, and he's doing a brilliant job with that. And again, mm. he comes back on a wildcard day, is faster than Pole, faster than Bradley. Okay, yes, the bike probably is a little bit better in terms of potential, but like Calio is an experienced hand who knows what he's doing, and you probably won't be on the MotoGP grid no, next he year. Absolutely won't. We know that. That's no. the shame. That's the point I was going to make on Calio. Unfortunately for him, he's, mm. he's he's can't really do any more than he's doing. And I think Neil Hodgson made a very good comparison in that he's he's very very similar in terms of his role, his his value to his team, uh, to Michele Pirro at Ducati. He does a very very similar job that Pirro does for that team um, in terms mm-hmm. of how good he is when he steps in, but also how valuable his input is to that team and its development. Absolutely. Um, but he yeah, shows. in terms of, in terms of next season. Um, the two factory spots we know are sewn up. Zarco and Paul Spargro will be their two factory riders. Miguel Oliveira, who we'll talk about in a moment in Moto2, has been signed up for one of the two Tech 3 KTM rides next Yay. season. And Herve Poncheral was very, very clear. You can always rely on Herve, to be brutally honest and open in his interviews. Um, I love and he was, that, and he, and he spoke to James Toesland <laughs> on Saturday. And he said he was asked about the possibility of a Bradley Smith or a Mika Calio perhaps jumping on that second Tech 3 KTM. And he immediately shook his head and said no. We are going to be a KTM junior team, which means the second rider alongside Oliveira will be a young rider or a Moto2 rider. Um, and that essentially mm-hmm. immediately rules out either Smith or Motor Point Calio from jumping on a KTM in MotoGP full time next year, which is a shame for Calio because he's done mm-hmm. all he can do um, to justify a seat full time with that team. I mean, who knows? He, he might still jump on Bradley Smith's bike for the end of the year if uh, if that sort of trend continues um, when he next wild cards because he's got five wild card appearances this season uh, later in the year. Um, I think the next one is, is Saxon Ring from memory, but we'll uh, we'll tell you about that mm. nearer the time. Um, but yeah, shame for Calio because uh, he's probably not going to be on the most GP full time next season, but he has done a brilliant job. Let's give you the full rundown then um, from Jerez. Marquez, the winner from Zarco and Iannone. Daniela Petrucci, fourth, ahead of Rossi. First of the factory, Jans in fifth. Jack Miller, sixth. Maverick Vignales, seventh, ahead of Bautista on the Ancal Nieto Ducati in eighth. Franco Morbidelli, ninth, and Calio in tenth. The rest of the points went to Poli in eleventh. Nakagami, twelfth. He passed Bradley Smith on the way out the final corner. Bradley relegated to thirteenth, although there was, those were his first points of the year. Tito about fourteenth, and Scott Redding, the only Aprilia to see the finish. Alicia Spargo had yet another breakdown. Scott Redding got the final point in 15th. Championship standings there. Mark Marquez leads it on 70 points. 12 clear of Zarco in 2nd. Maverick Vinales is 20 off the lead in 3rd. Uh, with Andrea Inoni up to 4th now on the Suzuki on 47. Davizioso drops 4 spots to 5th. He's on 46 points. 24 off the lead. Valentino Rossi jumps up to 6th ahead of Cal Crutchlow who was the championship leader 2 rounds ago. He's now 7th. Jack Miller 8th. Daniel Petrucci 9th. And Tito Rabat in 10th. As mentioned... Movistar Yamaha somehow lead the team's championship. Uh, there are a couple of points, there are a couple of points clear of Repsol Honda, but Honda do comfortably lead the manufacturers' championship after their second win in a row. In fact, their third win in a row, if you include Cal's win on the LCR bike back in Argentina.
Right, Moto2, this one will probably be quite brief because it was a pretty much a snooze fest in the intermediate class, um, unfortunately, on this occasion. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't hand out a bit of praise, Jay, because the main reason that it was an ultimate snooze fest is because Lorenzo Baldassari took an absolute machine gun to the rest of them and dominated the race. I have a new really genius idea for race strategy. Get to the front of the field and then ride a little bit faster than everybody else. It's a genius plan. I don't know why more riders take it up. Um, like, yeah, Lorenzo Baldassari, absolutely brilliant. Like, there is no argument there. Like, nobody could touch him once he hit clear air. Um, no one could touch him pretty much from Saturday morning. Yeah, from from qualifying all the way through to, you know, to, to the race itself. He qualified on pole by just under a tenth ahead of Alex Marquez, who, again, Marquez, again, tends to go very well around here. Last year's race winner was up the, was started the race on the front row. Um, again, like a guy that normally has probably got the best all-round ultimate pace in terms of Moto2 ability. But Lorenzo passed Marquez early on, got to the front, and while Miguel Oliveira shuffled his way up to the front, which we'll get to in a second, Lorenzo was untouchable. Just did nobody have an answer for him on raw pace. He had two temps in hand on pretty much everybody, and nobody could get close. It was it was a, a flawless ride from Lorenzo Baldassari, who, uh, yeah, look out. We have another title contender here, folks. Um, I was about to that, say, you know, he's, if you look at his season so far, um, second and a very close second in Qatar could easily have won there. Um, mm. Fourth in Argentina, tenth in America, a bit of an aberration for him. But then the win and the dominant win in Arge in, in Spain. And I was about to say dot 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 championship because um, there's every reason Why to not? suggest he could win it. I mean, look at the championship standings at the moment. He's second now, only nine points behind the leader uh, Francesco Bagnaia. And we've seen in the past with this team, with this Pons team, that they know how to take a rider to a championship. They did it with Paulo Spargaro. Um, mm. they perhaps would have done it with Tito Rabat had he not left the team for Mark VDS. Um, and we saw how good Maverick Vinales and Alex Rins have been with that team. Um, we, we immediately looked to Mark VDS in Moto2 as the team in the the, you know, the class of that particular uh, category. Mm. But let's not forget just how strong this Pons team are in Moto2 historically. Um, mm, yeah. And it looks like with the right rider, they can win a championship. And with Lorenzo Baldessari, they might well have found the right rider. He's been under our nose this entire time, and no one seems to have given him a real chance. I mean, he was at forward racing. He was never going to have the bike or the resources to get him to un untap his true potential. But if there them. is, Yeah, and he, he did win a race with them before at Misano a couple of years back. So, yeah, if there is one team that, that has a knack of unlocking the potential of its of its young talent, it's Pons. We've seen it with Maverick Vinales, with Paul Espargaro, um, you know, with Alex Rins a couple of years ago. No team has just has this knack of, of untapping youth like Pons do. And they, they seem to have unearthed another gem in Lorenzo Baldessari because, again, like there is no reason why he shouldn't be thinking championship, given, again, he's only you know, nine points off Pecco on the top of the standings right now. His season's actually been very similar to, to Bannard, besides maybe one less victory. But yeah, like, like I said, there's no reason why they can't be thinking title. Like, I still think the Calyx probably is the slightly stronger chassis at the moment, um, which is which is what Pons is running compared to one of their main rivals in Miguel de ATM, obviously. So as it stands, I, like the championship was, it just seems to have gotten the kicking the ass that it needed with you know a legitimate chassis manufacturer fight at the front of the field and a, a surprise contender in lorenzo because we, we were talking 
when it came to series contenders this year, we were probably thinking Pecco, we were probably thinking Miguel, we were probably thinking maybe Brad Binder, maybe Sam Lowe's giving his return to Moto2. Alex Marquez. Yeah, Alex Marquez, of course, he's been a perennial contender. But nobody talked about Lorenzo in this sort of context. And here we are. He, he He's here. He's arrived. And it looks like, again, this win at Jaref was no fluke. It's been yeah. coming. He, again, he was super fast in Qatar. was just a little bit unlucky on the day um, in the race. But again, he like he dominated that Qatar weekend before the race had even taken place. So this is not a fluke anymore. Lorenzo is up here and he's here to stay. Yeah, we've seen enough evidence, enough of a body of work from Lorenzo to suggest that he's here to stay now this season. No, he's been very, very competitive at three of the four weekends. And even on his worst weekend, he was still in the top 10, um, a weekend that uh, Banyaya also struggled in. Um, so yeah, he's looking very, very strong. Second in the race then, Going to Miguel Oliveira. A good news weekend, all told. Because as I told you a moment ago, Miguel Oliveira is now confirmed as a Tech 3 KTM MotoGP rider in 2019. First of all on that, about time. Um, Miguel Oliveira in MotoGP. About damn time. Yeah, well deserved. He's done everything he could have done in basically in his last two, three years as a a Moto3 and then Moto2 rider. Um, He's put in the hard yards and he deserves this graduation. Uh, so congratulations to Miguel Oliveira for that. Um, he's going to be in MotoGP for a long, long time, believe you and me. Talented, um, but, um, super but, talented. But in terms of this season, I mean, KTM are still without a win in 2018. Um, Weird that, isn't it? They, yeah, <laughs> they've, uh, from the, the probably the, the short odds championship favourite at the start of the year, Oliveira, based on how he finished last year. Um, but I guess while he's still racking at the podiums, he's gone fifth, third, third, second now uh, this season, Oliveira. I guess he'll kind of just happily shrug off the fact that he's not won a race yet whilst he's still competitively racking up the podiums and whilst he's only 10 points off the outright championship lead because he's got to be thinking to himself if this team and this bike finishes last finishes this year as strong as it finishes last year i'm in pretty good shape here yeah like like look, miguel is basically doing sort of what he did last year the wins didn't happen straight away but he's kept himself competitive that was a brilliant performance from miguel by the way starting from 14th on yeah. the grid and basically got up to second in about six laps that was phenomenal overtaking speed and to be able to overtake around her ref like that as well is incredibly impressive um another dazzling performance from the kid just didn't have the outright pace to, to stay with lorenzo once he got up into second place just lorenzo yeah, just again, did and then again, no one was going to touch him this weekend. He was just too fast in open air. And Miguel tried, but just made one mistake too many and realized, you know what? Second is good. Second is fine. We'll we'll take it. We'll take the fight to, to Le Mans and we'll, we'll carry on from there. But third consecutive podium for Miguel Oliveira. He can relax a little bit. His MotoGP future is secure, but I'm sure he's going to want that title. And like, he is your thinking man's rider. And like I... I, I continue to be very impressed by this kid, his maturity, his intelligence on the bike. Um, he knows where the line is a lot of the time. He just knows how to, to get results, and that's a very valuable trait. And that's why he's so close to being a title, you know, title leader, only 10 points behind um, behind Pecco at the moment. And he's looked every bit a match for those guys, despite not having a victory so far this season. He's been there or thereabouts pretty much every round. He's had top five finishes all four races so far. And you 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 can win titles, not winning a hand, not winning very many rounds if you're consistent. And that's what Miguel is doing. He's not had a bad race yet so far this season, and it shows. Hmm. And, and the championship, I think, 
And I've often said this in Moto2. I mean, the races themselves haven't necessarily been stunning so far, but the championship itself is shaping up to be a, a very, very good one. Perhaps the most exciting and most fascinating of the three this year in Moto2 because no one's really dominating, are they? I mean, Banyaya leads the championship and had another... He kind of did what champions do at Jerez. You know, when 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 it's not mm. your day, when your champ, when the race isn't there for you to win, just bank the points, get a podium if you can, and move on. And you know, he he, he had the measure at the end of Chevy Vieja, who, who chased him in the in the closing stages to finish third. Mm. Um, but it's shaping up in nice nicely, isn't it? Banyaya leads at the moment on seventy three, nine ahead of Baldassari, who's a point in turn ahead um, of Miguel Oliveira. Then we have Matias Pasini in fourth, who's only fifteen off the lead, uh, and Alex Marquez in fifth. Um, who's had a very, very costly DNF we'll talk about at the moment. He's on 47 points, so he trails by 26. We're still talking, even at this early stage, of the championship still not taking shape yet, and we're still looking at as many as four, if not five, genuine title contenders in Moto2. Yeah, and it probably would have been five or six if the air game crashed as well, because he's been excellent so far this season, and we've not even spoken about him really so far mm. this year. Another great result in fourth for the Dynavolt team. Um, he was second in Argentina in that fight with Bassini. If it wasn't for his crash he had at, at, at the Circuit of the Americas, um, he'd probably be in the mix as well. So, yeah, because he was already yeah, yeah. fourth there when he crashed. Exactly. So he was he he is he is running excellently at the moment. Like the, there is a a top tier of six, maybe seven or eight, if you want to throw Binder and Schrotter in there as well. You've had good results, but maybe not like that ultimate sort of I'm going to challenge for a race because Binder was right up there but seemingly just lost control. Was second early, uh, wasn't it? Yeah, but he just you see it he just seemed to override the the bike in the early going then it it cost him in the end. He seemed to stabilize to sixth in the end, but that seems to be Binder's limit at the moment. But yeah, as you're saying, yeah, it's absolutely right that at the moment um there's a, an elite group of maybe five or six runners in Moto two right now. It's shaping up to be an exciting championship probably the most we've had you know post Zarco era where he was so good and we had a string of real dominant champions in Moto2 if you, if you go back to Rabat and Zarco um and you know to a lesser degree maybe Mark Marquez even you can throw a Polar Spagro in there as well because Redding had that title chance yanked out from underneath him but um yeah like I, and the, this is the this is the most competitive I've seen Moto2 in quite some time hmm. which is a good sign for everybody especially given we lost a lot of quality names last year yeah, absolutely. And and a part of that elite group is Alex Marquez, who we have to talk about. I just hope, um, for Alex's sake, that we're not talking in, in November when we, we close up after Valencia that Alex Marquez isn't going to rue all these points that he's losing. Um, I mean, I think on balance, if you look at the, the, the entire season we've had so far, every session and every qualifying and every race so far, I think on balance, the guy who's had the best pace over those first four rounds it's probably been Alex Marquez. Um, he's had two poles mm. out of four, um, and those two pole positions he converted into podiums. Um, the third in Qatar when he had his brakes catch fire, and the second where he was kind of, he had a number done on him by Banyaya in that race, um, and ended up finishing second. Um, but for all this great pace rate, yet again, we seem to be saying this Alex Marquez, he hasn't got the points to show for it. Why? Why does this keep happening? Oh, it's... It, like my brother is 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 the world's biggest Alex Marquez fan, and he's pulling his hair out at least three times a week. He's given up on hope. Sunday was peak Alex Marquez, wasn't it? Yeah, it just like gets into a really good position. Probably has a really strong podium finish um, in him at least, and then makes a silly mistake and crashes. It's it's happened 
it happens a lot. That seems to be the story of Alex Marquez's top flight career. It just it just seems to just have these days where he, he just makes a silly mistake, he crashes, he has a bad day at the office, and it just it just it just doesn't live up to the potential that we know he has. And that's the most frustrating thing about Alex Marquez is that on his day he is unbeatable. He can win races by five or six seconds on a good day. We saw it at Catalonia in the past. If he gets away, he's gone. You, you, you can't beat him. And look, he has such such strong results on occasion. But oh, it's it's it, it makes the, the DNFs all the more frustrating hmm. because the potential is there, but he just can't seem to string a full season together. And it's shown because he's now... 26 points behind Pecco. He's now a race behind Banyaya, and we're only four rounds in, and that might be... That's a big ask to come back from there. Mm. Because you you don't expect or you don't have faith at the moment in Alex Marquez to put that consistent run of results together to make that up without chucking a crash in at some stage. That's the fear um, with Alex. Here's how the race finished then in Jerez, because there was literally very little else to mention um, from that Grand Prix. Um, here's the result. Baldazari, the winner, second career win for him. Um, ahead of Oliveira in second, Banyaya third, Chevy Vieje fourth, ahead of Mattia Pasini in fifth. Uh, Brad Binder, who Dre mentioned sixth about his limit at the moment, he's finished three of the first four races, all of those in sixth position, uh, just to underline hey. the point. Um, and that's where he finished in Spain. Marcel Schrotter seventh, Sam Lowe's, that's his best result of the season, which is probably, that's damning with fake praise if ever you've heard it, uh, in eighth. Um, ahead of his teammate, Icard Lacuona, who's having a very, very good season, quietly in ninth. And Fabio Quattararo, getting a speed up into the top 10 for the first time this year. Uh, Joan Mir, who kind of faded after starting quite well, finished 11th after winning his race on battle with Simone Corsi. Setsuta Nagashima gets his first points of the year in 13th. Hector Barbara, just don't mention how far behind his teammate he was, in 14th. Um, and Andrea Locatelli in 15th on the second of the Ital Trans Bikes. Championship standings then. Banyaya leads it at the moment. Um, he has forty. Uh, he has seventy-three points. That's nine clear of, of Baldassare in second. Oliveira is a point further back in third. Matei Pasini fourth, fifteen off the lead. Uh, then comes Alex Marquez in fifth. Vieje is sixth. Joan Mir seventh. Brad Binder eighth. Marcel Schrotter ninth. And Ika Lequona, who I mentioned a moment ago, the impressive young Spaniard at the uh, Swiss Innovative Investors team. He's tenth overall on twenty-three points. Uh. Oh boy, Moto3. Uh, right then, uh, we said uh, on last week's show, we'd been kind of waiting for one of those chaotic group fights in Moto3 where it all kicks off. We got our wish at Hareth last weekend, um, and only one place to start. With all due respect to the winner, who we'll talk about in a moment, we had to talk about what happened four laps from home at the Dry Sack Hairpin, where all three championship contenders along with the luckless Tony Arbolino, who had a brilliant race and got no reward for Indeed. it, were all taken out uh, by the bowling ball, as uh, Leopard have called him in their cartoon um, Wheelie Wednesday, as they called it Ooh. on social media this week, showing, showing zero chill at the Leopard team. Spicy. And, and whilst they perhaps could have taken a more subtle approach, you can kind of understand the point they're making, can't you, Dre? Because... This has kind of been coming from Aaron Canet. Just to explain what happened, Aaron Canet outbreaks himself into the dry sack hairpin, took out an Air Bashini, Jorge Martin, uh, Tony Abolino, and himself, it has to be said, at mm-hmm. the hairpin, and has been slapped with a back of the grid start for the next race at Le Mans. Um, and I think, given what we've seen last year with Canet and what we saw in Argentina on Friday morning with Canet and what we've seen at Jerez, this has been coming in race direction quite rightly laid down the law to him 
Yeah, I think the phrase we're looking for here is better late than never. Um, and it, like, I, I have to almost applaud Canet for picking up the infamous um, bowling situation of the of the very difficult 33-14-88 split. Um, that was that was not pretty, um, and that was that was reckless from Canet. That's what that was. He it was just daft, like, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like. In Moto3, these bikes have only got, what, 60 horsepower? They weigh about the same as one of you, Lewis. And I know you're not the biggest guy in the world. So, like, like to outbreak yourself that badly and to basically catapult yourself into the side of a side of Arbolino, which obviously, like, like, like Skittles, you could argue, hit Bastianini and, and took Martin out as well. And Martin was absolutely livid after mm. the race. And rightly so. He was, he was challenging for the victory. All of them were challenging for the victory. They were all in the leading group. And then Canet, who was on the trails of that leading group for the vast majority of the race, Canet just rides like Canet just just completely outbreaks. Like he's, it's not even like he's just gonna miss the apex. He's broken about ten meters too late. Yeah, I do the not other three understand. guys weren't there. He was gonna miss the corner and go off into the gravel trap. Yeah, like nothing was stopping that bike. It was it was a mistake. It was silly riding from Canet at best. And like as I mentioned, like Canet's starting to develop a bad reputation of a guy that doesn't seem to control a bike sometimes. And yeah, I, I completely agree. This has been coming for Canet for a good couple of rounds. Lad race direction have finally stepped in to say, you know what, this has got to stop. Have a yeah. back, have a back at the grid start for Le Mans. <laughs> yeah, there's a few words you can you can use to describe it. irresponsible, which I think is the the term that race direction used. Irresponsible riding, and they gave him the penalty. Reckless is another way of terming it. And um, look, this, I hope Aaron Canet takes this as a, as a bit of a lesson as to, to, to how we can improve his game because it's clear no one's ever questioned how much talent this, this young man has got, Aaron Canet. He's, he is you know, he's in that same group as the likes of Juan Mir, uh, who came up at the same time as him and the guy. I mean, he could still win this championship this year uh, in Moto3 because mm. um, mm. he's got all the pace to, to win several races. and. Um, I'm not saying he's as good as Marc Marquez, but I can see similarities in that Marc Marquez had this sort of reckless wild streak back when he was in Moto2 right. Um, right. and just needed to just, just smooth off those rough edges and you had a real incredible rider there. And Absolutely. I kind of see the same with Canet. We know how talented and how quick he can be. He just needs to stop riding like a pillock. And he's the fin- and I think he's probably the finished article. Um, and yeah, you could totally understand Leopard being angry with him. Um, because you know Bastianini was looking strong in that race, he led it at one stage. Grassini yeah, likewise. Martin was looking good, um, and and hopefully he'll take this as a right. I've got to I've got to just learn a lesson here and just think about how I'm riding, not just in races, but in in all sessions of a race weekend. Because of course we saw it happen with with Yachenko, uh in Argentina. Can it will start at the back of the grid um, at Le Mans and very very quickly. Dre, the right move from race direction sends yeah, out the right sends out the right message, doesn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. That's that's absolutely fine. I've got no problem with that. I think that's the right decision from from race direction. Give him a back of the grid start, uh, make him work for it next time around. Luckily, he's at Le Mans, where overtaking free, and if you have a fast bike, you should be able to get up the field fairly quickly. So, you know, it's like it's not, not all is lost for Canet by any means by starting from the back of the grid. We saw what, what people like Danny Kent can do um, when when the bike is hooked up correctly around there. But yeah, I completely agree. Back of the grid is about right for me. Mm. That was that was reckless riding. He ruined four people's races, including his own. Um, 
via his own incompetence. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely valid. I, and, I mean, Race Direction has warned everybody in all three classes we are going to be stricter on penalties from here on in, which, you know, it seems to be that, ra- that Race Direction are enforcing the rule book like they're supposed to. So, good. Like, If, you go- if you're going to make those sort of statements, follow through. F1 yeah. stewards, I'm looking at you. Um, yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, quite right. I think I'm back at the grid penalty. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I wanted to mention Arvalido, uh, the, 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 the guy who almost gets forgotten in all of this, who was also mm. taken out because that kid had a fantastic race. He qualified tw- He qualified 21st on the grid. Um, and he was stunning and he was in with a real shot of winning the race he, he looked brilliant in that race so, so I wanted to just give him a mention because um, the, the kid had pole position let's not forget in Argentina and he's quietly although he doesn't necessarily look like it in the championship he's having a very very good season um, on that Marinelli sniper's bike um, but we have to give props to the winner a first time winner uh, in Moto3 uh, in Philip Ertl who qualified second on the grid and yes that battle that crash at the at the hairpin it split the leading group up we had a leading group of around a dozen or so riders um mm. that essentially got split into two with the two riders who were ahead of that fight um Uttel and Bezeki ending up with like three seconds in hand over the rest of the group who were then three seconds back obviously as they navigated mm. their way around the carnage um but let's not um use that instant as a, as a means of taking anything away from Ertel Dre because Looking at how that race went, he led for so often. Even had those four riders still been upright and finished, there's still every reason to suggest that Ertel would have won anyway. Yeah, like there's like uh, uh, this was for me the best of I've seen the Philip Ertel, and you know, it's a it's a lovely story as well. This was his 91st Grand Prix in Moto Three. He's a he's a veteran of the and class now. And the joy now. of his father as well. Oh, it was it was it was it, it made me choke up. It, like his dad was uh, like was just apocalyptic with joy. Um, see, uh, like like father like son, seeing uh, um, seeing seeing his son come over the line there, just hugging everybody. He was in tears. It was it was a, it was wonderful scenes to see Philip Otel. And again, that was no fluke. No matter what happens, no matter how much you want to read into the into the Canet incident, he 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 earned that. That was a hard fight with Marco Bacchetti right at the end of that race. Bacchetti threw the house at Otel and Otel went into the back while him and got his tub. Um it was a fantastic performance. And what I saw was most special that final lap, he did not give Marco an inch. It was yeah. a fantastic Final, final lap. And Ertel took. He knew the dive bomb was coming. He having, having to make Marco go around the outside of the of, of Lorenzo corner. Brilliant tactical riding. He knew he had it in the bag. Fantastic, astute veteran riding from Philip Ertel, and he was rewarded with his first ever Grand Prix victory and much deserved. He was brilliant. Yeah, just to uh, fill people in on the backstory, if people, perhaps people aren't quite uh, uh, up to speed mm. with it. Peter Ertel, his father, a five-time Grand Prix winner in his own right, including a victory his last win, came at Imola in the 125 class back in 1997. Um, and yeah, he's now got... Um, his, his son has followed in his footsteps in winning uh, a Grand Prix, and um, let's hope it's not the last victory for Philip Ertel. He's, he's mm. kind of... He's had the, those occasional races where he's threatened a good result because he's had podiums before, uh, and he's had a pole position before back at the Circuit of the Americas um, a year or two back. Um but yeah, this was this was a race. This was no fluke. This victory. Yeah, let's let, no. let's let's not pretend that this 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 multi ride accident handed in the win because he was leading prior to that. And Indeed. as you mentioned, he didn't give Bezeki an inch on the final lap, and he he led for seven or eight laps on the bounce without anyone even troubling him because 
Um, he seemed to have that that speed under braking and down the straights. And KTM deserved praise for this, and we'll we'll talk about them in a little bit more detail in a second. But there was he was a very very difficult rider to overtake. Period. Um, no matter how many riders rode his tail, and Bezeki found that out on the final lap uh, as Ertl took the win. Um, but for Bezeki, Dre, um, second place for him. He leads the Moto3 World Championship, um, and he leads it by eight points from Jorge Martin. A KTM rider leads the World Championship. Um, Bezeki leads the championship, and I've got every reason to suggest that this kid can stay the course this year. I don't think he's going to fall away from the front of this championship either, because if you look at the races we've had so far, I mean, he's been the, by and large, he's been the fastest KTM, but he's been a legitimate podium threat in all of them, including the win back in Argentina. Yes. Um, he's a rider that none of us really talked about pre-season, but boy, is he proving us wrong. Indeed. Like, Marco Bajetti has been fantastic. Jeez. Um, three straight podium finishes now, which in Moto3 is a very hard thing to accomplish. Um, it's, 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 it's hard to be consistent, um, for, for that, for that amount of time. And again, we forget this is, this is just another one of those really young, really talented Valentino Rossi camp graduates who's only 19 years old. Um, and, you know, this is, this is only his second full season. He was on a Mahindra last year and he's made the switch to KTM, which we know has, you know, like most people will tell you has a competitive disadvantage um compared to the honda and yet he is able to make it work and he, he, again this was a this is a race he could have won didn't quite come together for him on this occasion but still a fantastic performance again deservedly leading the championship this has been a season where a lot of guys have made silly mistakes like martin you know obviously wasn't his fault in this in this case can it again took himself out in, in Spain and then took half the field with him. Martin, again, made that mistake in Argentina by switching bikes. It didn't work out for him. No one has really stood out as, like, the dude to beat in Moto3 so far this season. And guys like Marco are going to take advantage of that. And, yeah, he, like he's, he's established himself as a guy that there's no reason, in my opinion, why he can't go on to be a true contender for the title as the season goes on. KTM are digging out results. And, hey, what says KTM more than a 1-2-3 finish at her? Just like the form book suggested. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. KTM 1, 2, 3. We'll talk about the third of them in a moment. But um, you mentioned that KTM still has a bit of a disadvantage to Honda. And they probably do. But it's certainly not the disadvantage it was last year, is it, Dre? I mean, if we look at mm. if we look at their result, I mean, I mentioned Oakle earlier and how difficult it was to, for them to overtake him. The Hondas weren't exactly outgunning the KTMs down the straights, were they? It wasn't like the KTMs no. were being swallowed up down the straight. And Oakle was holding on to that lead pretty comfortably. Um, and, you know, this championship perhaps is now more open than we thought pre-season. We thought this was going to be between the, the three lead Honda riders of Bastianini, Martin, and Canet. But the sort of revival, if you want to call it that, of the KTMs this season, led by Bozzecki and now Ertl, um, taking the victory this weekend, perhaps it's more open than we thought. Indeed. I think we, we might have been wrong about this a lot contenders have had dnfs and bad results not entirely through their own fault but that's the reality of bike racing sometimes you're gonna have a bad day at the office um dg has been you know not quite been the dizzy and high side dude we thought he was going to be but again has had solid results across the board that's why he's still in the mix only 17 off the top yeah i have to and say yeah like, dijan antonio when in a race where the three quote quote big favorites all were taken out that was a race he should be winning agreed completely agreed and he was in the leading never seemed to connect back up to the front after Canet played Skittles on the road. So, yeah, that, that will be an opportunity missed for sure. Like, only minimal 
um, damage done to the championship standings with, G with DG finishing seventh when it could have and probably should have been a lot better um, in, in hindsight. But uh, yeah, this is looking a bit more open than we thought. Martin has been probably the best overall in terms of sheer form so far this season, but um, he's not had results go his way. Canet has had real hair length, like a real like hairline stupidity, and even then, Coterie wasn't particularly strong either. So no one's really, again, like Moto2, no one's really stood out um, in terms of results in comparison to overall speed and Pachetti's taking advantage. It's, it's, it's open season right now in Moto3, and that's what makes it so intriguing right now. Absolutely, and uh, we mentioned it's KTM 1, 2, 3. The third of them was Marcos Ramirez, um, remember him from last year, uh, leading KTM rider of last year, and has had a podium at the final round in Valencia. Um, that was his first podium of this season. That doesn't really tell you the whole story, though. He was promoted from fourth to third. He was fourth on the road at the end of the race. I was promoted that way because the man in third, or the boy in third, let's call him by what he actually is, um, was relegated a spot for uh, exceeding track limits. And this, for me, was Drake was one of the performances of the weekend, if not the season so far, from. A young 16-year-old um, who is riding in on his fourth Grand Prix, youngest rider in the field. He was born four days before Christmas 2001, for goodness sake. <laughs> um, and, and, Shit. And, and, and Estrella Galicia have got a habit, a brilliant habit, of unearthing absolute gems of young talents from the Spanish National Championship. Blimey, Alonso Lopez. It looks like they found another. Um, he looks like a gem, a, a real diamond in the rough. My what God, a ride that he, was! That was stunning from Alonso Lopez. My goodness me! Like again, got all the way up to the leading group, was knocked off road, fell all the way out of the points again, and then clawed his way back up to what probably should have been a podium finish if it weren't for those track limits and knocked him back one position over the line to fourth. But still, what a brilliant ride from Alonso Lopez. He had no right being that high up the field after almost getting collected in the early periods and then coming back through the field like that. Stunning performance from Alonso Lopez. Again, December 2001, this kid was born. Mm. Oh, God, I feel old as all hell. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. Um, outstanding um, performance. What a talent this kid looks like. And, you know, you, you look at races like, I mean, you could explain away to a certain extent a race like a Red Bull kid. That he's, he has raced at that circuit before uh, in the CEV Junior World Championship. But even so, to, to go from 18th on the first few laps after tangling with the eventual winner, Ertl, um, to basically pick his way back through a group of over a dozen riders to get back up to third, um, was an absolutely sensational piece of riding. And, and and when you look at results like the one he got in Argentina, in races like that, mixed conditions where either the brave or the bold or the experienced really you know come through and get the results, he was sick there in his second mm. ever Grand Prix. And it's, it's performances like that where you just look at, yeah, he's good. He is seriously good. Yeah, he's um, talent. And he's, he, yeah, he has got all the talent in the world. And... Boy, Australia Galicia looked like they found another one in, Aaron Ka in, in Alonso Lopez. As we mentioned, just 16 years old um, and already a sixth and a fourth in his first four Grand Prix as a Indeed. world championship rider. What a talent he looks like. Um, so he's looking um, like he could be uh, a very, very strong rider in the future. Here's how the Moto3 race finished. Then Ertl the winner from Bezeki and Ramirez. KTM 1, 2, 3. First all KTM podium since I think 2016. Um, from memory, definitely didn't have one last year. Uh, they only won one Grand Prix, mm. full stop. Uh, Alonso Lopez, best of the Hondas in fourth, even though he was third on the road. Jean Messia, uh, the uh, rider who impressed us so much on his debut in Austria last year, 
he came from 25th on the grid to finish 5th. Uh, so let's mention that as well as an incredible piece of, piece of riding on the second of the best of capital Dubai bikes, teammates of Ramirez. Uh, Tatsuki Suzuki was sixth on the uh, Honda, ahead of Fabio Di Gian Antonio seventh, Kuba Confile eighth, Kato Toba ninth, and Gabriel Rodrigo tenth. Um, the final rider in that leading group, or the final two riders, were Antonelli and Sasaki, 11th and 12th, just 4.2 seconds covered the top uh, 12 riders across the line. Um, Sasaki, by the way, in twelfth uh, position, was only half second off the rostrum. That's how close it was. Uh, Andrea Andrea Mino was thirteenth, ahead of Mikhail Yachenko, the Kazakh rider who gets his first points in fourteenth, and I Ogura, the Japanese rider who wild carded on the uh, Asia Talent Team bike, he scored the final point in fifteenth position. Championship standings then: it's Bezeki who's the surprise leader after four races, eight clear of Aaron Kanat in second. Oh, sorry, Akira Martin in second. Canitz third, a further seven behind. Uh, Fabio Di Gian Antonio is fourth. He's 17 off the lead. Philip Ertel has jumped all the way up to fifth on 35, ahead of Bastianini, who drops the spot to sixth. Gabriel Rodrigo is seventh, ahead of Antonelli in eighth. Confound ninth. Uh, and Lorenzo Dallaporta, who, of course, got that podium in the first round of the season, hasn't really built on that. He's dropped all the way down to tenth in the championship. Next round of all three classes is in a week's time, the French Grand Prix at the moment. Just about have time to talk BSB in the uh, the short time that remains. There was so much to talk about from that harass weekend that we haven't left ourselves much time for BSB. Um, but let's get into it. Alton Park hosted the third round of the championship. The first two taking place at Donington Park and on the Indy layout at Brands. We left Brands with Leon Haslam taking his first win of the season. A supreme victory as he outsmarted Glen Irwin in the mixed conditions there. Uh, he kicked on with another couple of wins this weekend, Dre. A superb double for Leon Haslam. It's established him as the man to beat as the championship leader. And two wins where he just showed all the class and all the experience that we associate with Leon Haslam. Yeah, that was a... Should we call that a professional job for mm. Leon Haslam? Because that's what, it, that's what it felt like. It was just a, a, a ride where... Haslam just looked like he was he was going to win both races. He just there's, 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 like... a, there's a slogan that uh, Seamus and Cesaro peddle out in World well, WWE that I think applies quite well to Haslam. Mm. Uh, he is the bar, yeah. so to speak. Um, you want to that... win a championship in British Superbikes, you have to be better than this guy. Yes, um, and that's now three on the bounce for Leon Haslam, and he's he's looking as good as he ever has out. He seems to have gotten some of those tire issues ironed out. And yeah, quite right. He has been fantastic. He was fantastic here in Alton Park. He he had to he had to earn both of those wins by no means paper. But Haslam never really looked like losing either of them. Uh, um, the first round in race one, he had Jake Dixon chasing him. He was the only other guy really that that looked like he had the pace to challenge Haslam for the win. But 
Haslam just kept his head down and just you know put a temp here, a temp there, and just did the job, and then just slowly just inched out enough distances in terms of in terms of just enough enough bike lengths, just that Dixon couldn't couldn't just couldn't even try a move really, and Haslam took that one. Race two, a different story. Jason O'Halloran was at the front this time round, and O'Halloran tried everything to get past Haslam, especially on the last two laps. He was trying alternate line through the circuit tried you know tried to break as, as late as he dared on numerous occasions again just couldn't do it Haslam had just parked his bike and just rode with such a level of pace that O'Halloran just could not could just couldn't try anything he would like he had just had the door slammed in his face he was just mm. outsmarted by Haslam really it was like it was the most like easily the most convincing anyone has looked in a BSB weekend I'd say so far I mean Bradley Ray can make the case of Donington given the, maybe, the, maybe the surprise value of Bradley Ray's um, dominance there. But this was a reminder that Leon Haslam is still a world-class motorcycle racer. That was um, two two professional victories there by Haslam. We just did not put a foot out of place all weekend. Mm, yeah, he is looking the class of British Superbikes at the moment. It's it's shaping up. We, we said this in previous weeks. There look of, there look to be three riders that are kind of breaking away from the field, and the championship standings reflect that with Haslam, Ray, and Byrne. Um, up at the front, but it reminded me a lot that race two win reminded me an awful lot of his win in race two at, at Brands Indy, where he just seemed to just have an answer for everything. Like he had a rider who comparatively had a little less experience. I mean, Halloran's much more experienced than Glen Irwin is, um, but even so, you have to get up very early in the morning to outsmart Leon Haslam. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as you say, everything Halloran tried, Haslam had an answer for it. He had him covered off. Um, and it's impossible to say he had a comfortable victory when he only won it by eight hundredths of a second. But like right. you said, there was never a stage at any thought where, point where I thought Haslam's going to lose this. He just looked no. like he had it entirely under control. And if Has- if O'Halloran was going to attempt something, Haslam would have the answer for it. Um, and that's exactly what he did. A tremendous double for him, which is taking him from second in the championship now up into the lead by 14 points from Bradley Ray. And he's already dry, it has to be said putting himself in a very, very strong position by the time the showdown comes around because he's already up to 18 podium points now, um, which is five yeah. which is five more than Bradley Ray's got and nine more than Shaky's got. Shaky just seems to not quite have the minerals to get in, get into the podium because he's not had a race. He's not had a weekend where he's finished on the podium in both races. Um, he just seems to be a little bit up and down shaky. And yeah, this is this is shaky. It's on the Ducati. I'm sure he'll find like half a second out of somewhere. He'll pull it out of his arse and then shaky will go yeah. on to win the title. This is I, I, I'm not falling for this trap again, Lewis. Yeah. Like, I like, like, if you find a way... next one of his, uh, his and Ducati's best. Oh, friends. yeah, he's, a, he's he's excellent at Stetterton. So that's one I'd probably pencil him in for it for at least one victory. Um, which I'm stunned he's only got one so far this season, to be honest with you. But, um, yeah, as you said, Haslam looks like the man to beat again now. And, and we, we, we kind of said this last year. It's just, it would have been such a different title race if it wasn't for that one crash he had in the showdown last year before Brands Hatch. And it would have been very interesting indeed. But it's Haslam has now become the foil to Shaky Burn in BSB. Probably the best foil for him since Kianari, where it's like, like he's like the Antichrist now. He's the kryptonite. Like because he's the only other guy that seems he can pull out these victories on on a regular basis now. Like Bradley, always you know, there. he's always there. Like Haslam is not going away. He had that dodgy opening round, but it's not finished outside of the top four since with three victories in a second place. It's 
he, he he's stringing these podium credits along and now again as he said he's now got a, an effective nine point lead on shaky already and that's a good start for Hazem. He's, he's just got to keep racking these up if he racks these up he's going to go into the channel with probably you know 15 20 points in hand and that might be enough to get him over the line this time round. and if Hazem can just string these results together and just not have a bad weekend not have he just not just doesn't you know make a bad mistake on tire selection. If he can if he can do that at some point, he I think he could end up winning the title. He seems like the only guy that can beat Shaky at the moment consistently over the course of a season. Mm, yeah, he he takes the lead in the championship from Bradley Ray, who's still second overall, um, three points ahead of Burn. Um, a fourth and a seventh for Bradley Ray this time out. He crashed um, in Q3, which left him pretty deep on the grid, left him ninth on the grid. Um, still came through to finish fourth in that race. Um, and it, it kind of says a lot about how this kid has elevated himself in, in recent weeks that we're almost talking about a fourth and a seventh for Bradley Ray on the Bill Bay Suzuki. Like, that's a bad weekend. Um, but uh, like I say, given the way he's ridden in uh, in previous rounds and so far this season, I think we can kind of forgive him a fourth and a seventh, can't we? Yeah, I mean... It, it, like, it's still it, not just, bad. Like, it's, it's not bad at all. It's just one of those things... How did you end up being not as good as you were the last time you were Bradley? How does that work? <laughs> um, it, it's a bit weird, but um, no, like, you can't fault Bradley for that. It was a competitive weekend. That was about five or six due to in that real leading group, but it came to strong pace. Dixon, uh, as always, liked Alton Park. He also was very strong this weekend, you know, picking up 36 points, um, the most of anybody not named Leon. So, um, yeah, like it, it just wasn't Bradley's weekend, really. It's not a bad weekend. It's not getting away from him just yet. It, lo- it looks like the status quo is just starting to come up now with Leon and, and Shaky making their way to the top. Jason O'Halloran is, you know, who's been a perennial fixture of the showdown, is starting to come into play, as is Dixon, who was the surprise of 2017. It's starting to stabilize a little bit now in the overall standings. We're starting to see who the top runners are now. But, uh, yeah, like the, the Bradley, we can forgive him on this one. I, I don't think anyone's going to be too upset. Fourth and a seventh. Maybe he started a little bit too strong for our standards. I mean, again, he shocked the world the first the first weekend when he had that double at Donington. Um, the, the 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 hype was cool just a little bit, but there's still plenty around for Bradley still to go. I'm 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 more than certain he'll make the showdown comfortably. Um, so fourth and seventh is fine. Yeah, absolutely fine. And um, you mentioned O'Halloran, who finished a very, very close second um, in the race, uh, in race two of the weekend. He was not quite as competitive in race one. He finished a fairly distant fifth, 14 seconds back. Um, But we were talking about O'Halloran pre-show in that he's been in the show now each of the last two seasons and probably would have been the year before um, had he not got injured mid-year when he was in the top six prior to an injury that he picked up at Thruxton. Um, and I, I, every time I look at Al Halloran and I see him in the top six, I almost somehow get surprised, and I don't know why I am. Um, I mean, he doesn't right. necessarily have those weekends that make you stand up and think, wow, but he's just always there or thereabouts, isn't he? And he's up to fourth in the championship, and based on past history and previous form, I don't see any reason to suggest that he's going to be shifted from that top six. 
No, because he, he like, again, he's made the last two showdowns now. He probably would have made the one in 2015 as well if it wasn't for the injury he suffered in the middle of the season. He was looking good for a spot there at the time. Like he is now like a perennial results guy now, where he may not he may only win one, maybe two rounds a year tops, but on a good day he'll get on the podium, we'll get a few podium credits here and there. But he'll overall he will not make very many mistakes. He will rack up good points. And, you know, he he will get his head down and get on with it. And, again, he, he's one of those guys that's just it's, – it's just hard to beat him over, you know, 15, 20 races to get into a showdown spot. He seems he's roughly the bar you need to get into the showdown now. He's been a perennial fixture now for two or three years, and he is good enough to justify being there on a regular basis because he doesn't make very many mistakes. Well, on a good day, he's getting on the podium. Um, that's what that's who Jason O'Halloran is. He's not – quite on that level where he's up there with the best of the very best on a consistent basis, but he's good enough. And that's, that's what counts for Honda right now. They need him and Linford to consistently feature, especially now Linford season is probably a sadly now a write-off given, um, given the injury situation that he's in. Yeah. Dan Linford has dropped all the way down to, I believe 13th of the championship. He's on 29 points. Um, and he is currently, uh, quit Matt Lewis, 26 points off the top six. So even if he returns at Snetterton next time out, which is in about a month's time, um, he's still got a bit of work to do to try and climb himself back into showdown contention. Um, the showdown spots at the moment, we've covered four of them. Haslam, Ray, Byrne and O'Halloran are the top four at the moment in the championship. Fifth at the moment is still Glenn Irwin, um, who probably didn't get the points that his pace deserved at Alton Park because he crashed out of that leading group in race one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, around a period in the race where everyone seemed to be crashing um, at that point in the race. Um, now, he, he, he didn't take necessarily the points away from the weekend that he should have done, Dre, which might hurt him later in the season. But this is another guy who's got a real showdown chance here. And there's no question, based on the three rounds we've seen so far this season, that at the very least, he's closed the gap in pace between himself and Shaky, hasn't he? Definitely. Definitely. Like, Irwin is no longer just Shaky. Either... Again, he's now in the top eight on a regular basis now. He is not, you know, he's not going to be a guy that, you know, is just going to be a rollover and, you know, might just creep into the showdown spots. On the way he's going right now, he will probably make it in hmm. um, if he keeps this up. Um, he, he had that second place at Brands in the round two, just losing out to Leon Haslam. But he's now in the top six on a regular basis. He's he's, he's finished no lower than seventh apart from the crash at Alton Park race one. Besides that, he's been in the top seven every single race. And that, I mean, just by sheer probability of maths, if you're finishing in the top seven every round, you're probably going to finish sixth or higher overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's where Irwin needs to be, especially if, let's, and we're being frank here, if he's going to back Shaky up in the showdown, that's probably the most useful place Irwin can be right now. Mm. Uh, the final showdown spot at the moment um, is in the possession of probably the big mover uh, in the championship of the weekend, Jake Dixon um, on the RAF regular reserves, Kawasaki, taking 36 points from a possible 50. Uh, and the, the only rider besides Haslam to get on the podium in both races. Um, he was a fairly close second in race one, a second and a half back. Um, and then he was the best of the rest after Haslam and O'Halloran uh, in race two. Um uh, I mean, we, we sometimes forget, I suppose, with Dixon that he's still quite a young rider. Um, so much like Bradley Ray, he's going to have the occasional bad weekend on the occasional uh, get-off where he doesn't score points. But in many ways, Dre, Jake Dixon back at the level we kind of thought he'd be pre-season. Yeah, he, lo- yeah, he loves Alton Park. Um, Dixon is still only 22 years old. Um, 
yeah, like he's he's not had the best of starts. He struggled at Donington. He was up and down the Brands Hatch, and this was by a mile is probably his best weekend in, in superbike racing since um, that double victory at Knock Hill last year, which put him on the map essentially. So to have the, to finish second and third, I mean, he just again just did not have the pace to keep up with Haslam on the day in the, in the factory, quote unquote Kawasaki with Haslam um, up the front on the ninety one. Um, again, he just didn't have the race, but still a very good second place again. It was well clear of the chasing group um, in on that one, and again clawed his way back up to third in race two as well. Again, just couldn't couldn't stay with Haslam and O'Halloran, but led the second group, and you can't ask for much more than that, uh, Jay Dixon. I mean, again, his season's not been great so far but now he's back in the showdown spots probably where a rider of his quality belongs because he's one of the few guys for me that who can win races on his day he is competitive up front he's got elite level speed um and he showed it this weekend that was a great weekend from dixon couldn't ask for much more realistically and that's like it's, it's the sort of weekend that's seemingly just put him back where he probably should be yeah it makes me wonder why some bookmakers um before last weekend had him i think as low as 33 to 1 to win the outright Ludicrous. championship, given that you only need to get in the top six to have an actual chance uh, by the showdown. And I'm pretty sure I'm right with that because the, the the odds I'm currently looking at from another bookmaker have him at 18 to 1 now, um, which clearly, based on what he did last weekend, those odds were shortened. Um, so mm-hmm. he must have been around the 33 to 1 mark. He's 18s now, um, is Jake wow. Nixon, which I think is still incredibly high. That's um, still high. Based on... Based on what he is capable of. If he gets to the showdown, we know he's capable of just pulling a double out of nowhere, as he did at Knock Hill last year. Um, so Jake Dixon kind of getting to that level where we thought he'd be before the season started and looking a real contender. Now, here's how the race is finished then. Haslam, the winner, the winner in race one from Dixon uh, in second with Shaky Burn third, ahead of Brad Ray fourth. O'Halloran fifth, ahead of Josh Brooks, um, his best uh, weekend of the season so far, uh, two sixth places for him. Um, Danny Buckham was 7th in race 1 ahead of Tommy Bridewell Taron McKenzie on the 2nd of the McCams bikes and Richard Cooper on the 2nd of the Bill Bay Suzuki's uh, in 10th place uh, James Ellison got 11th Yuchi Kianari was 12th that was the best result of his uh, returning weekend on the Honda ahead of Gino Ria with his first points in BSB Jakob Smertz and Mason Law rounding out your top 15 race 2 went to Haslam again this time from Halloran with Dixon in 3rd Burn 4th Glenno in 5th uh, so the BYZ Ducati's line astern. Josh Brooks sixth, the head of Brad Ray, um, with Bucking in eighth this time, Richard Cooper ninth, and Bridewell tenth. Peter Hickman, who crashed out of race one, only finishing 11th, so his hopes of back to back showdowns are looking a little remote at the moment. Uh, Azar Ellison's, who was only 12th, uh, Michael Laverty 13th, Taylor McKenzie on the motor torpedo Ducati 14th, and Kianari took the final point uh, in race two of the weekend, so points in both races for him. Championship standings then are led by Haslam. He is 14, clear of Bradley Ray in second. Shaky Burn third on 98. Uh, Jason O'Halloran is fourth, uh, a further 35 points back, so the top three are very much broken away. Uh, Glenn Irwin is in fifth position. He dropped a spot last weekend. Jake Dixon's climbed several spots up into sixth and the last of the showdown spots at the moment. He is 12 points clear of the nearest challenger, which at the moment is Josh Brooks in seventh place on 43. Danny Buchan is only two points further back in eighth. Michael Laverty ninth. And Christian Iden, who missed last weekend through injury um, and spent the weekend commentating for Eurosport. Uh, he is 10th on Yay. 33 points. We hope to see him back at Snetterton. The next round of the championship, which is in mid-June. Yes, we've got a long break now in BSB. The 15th to the 17th of June for the next round, around the 300 layout at Snetterton in Norfolk. 
Right then, before we go on this week's edition of Bike Live, let's uh, quickly mark your card as to what's to come uh, this weekend. It's the uh, World Superbike Round at Imola, um, a circuit that is very, very high on my bucket list of circuits I want to visit. God, I love that place. Um, yes. I think uh, Imola, I think we both got a soft spot for Imola as a circuit. Um, and we, I think we both got a soft spot in uh, in recent times for one Keenan Safoglu, based on what he's been through. Um, and this weekend, um, we get to say one final farewell um, to the greatest rider in the history of the Supersport World Championship, the five times champion. We kind of thought in uh, in previous weeks that retirement was on the cards. We now know officially that that is the case. He is retiring. But what I absolutely love, Dre, and there's a bit of Hollywood in this, in uh, for a rider who, as Greg Hades mentioned today, if he was a MotoGP rider, there'd probably have been a movie about this guy and the stuff he's been through in his life. Um, Kinnan Safoglu has mm. decided to retire, but not before having one last go of it at Imola. Of course, one last ride. It's like the plot of a fucking movie. Um, yes, one last race for Kinnan I hope he wins. Oh, God, it's like one last, like, hail to the king moment in, yeah. in, in World Supersport. If Keenan if Keenan won and then just bowed out with a win, just to remind everybody just what a genius this man is on a Supersport bike... That would be, I think, the most fitting and beautiful end for one of a, a one of the true, genuine sports. Yeah, I mean, the, the the undisputed king of super sport um, by any measure. Um, just going back a few years, back when he was dominating for Honda as well, when he was riding for Tenkarte, and now the only guy that's able to make that Kawasaki dance um, in the modern day field, given how dominant Yamaha seems to be at the moment. And he's, he's a class act. He's a genuine legend of superbike racing, no matter which way you, you slice it. Um, and he's one of its most important figures. So it's um, one last time. It's gonna, I'm going to enjoy watching Keenan take to the track. It, it, it'll be fantastic. Yeah, that I really, as I say, I really hope he wins. Above all else, I hope he just stays safe and doesn't 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 get injured, doesn't crash this weekend because that would be a terrible way for his career to end. Um, but yeah, what what a contribution he's made um, to motorcycle racing. What a contribution he will continue to make in the future because it looks like he's gonna. Well, it looks like he's gonna stay involved as some sort of rider coach or perhaps a senior team member um, at the Pachetti team. But uh, as Greg Haynes was mentioning today in commentary, um, there's talk that he might actually go into some sort of govern, govern, governmental position in Turkey, uh, which is incredible. You that is, thought. yeah, that is how highly he's thought of in that nation. I mean, he's he's, he's good friends wow. with the, the highest of high powers in that country. Um, so, um, yeah, we could well see Kinnisofoglu, um, perhaps the running Turkish for... Turkish uh, sports minister. Yeah, who Turkish knows? sports minister Kinnisofoglu, you know? Yeah, <laughs> stranger things have happened. Um, and, <laughs> right. Yeah, not many, but still. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, but uh, in, in all seriousness, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great to see him one last time. And he was, and remarkably, he was fifth quickest today um, in free practice, despite the fact that he hasn't ridden since that uh, terrible crash and... Um, that pain-ridden ride that we saw from him in Phillip Island back in February. So he hasn't really ridden a bike in two and a half months. Um, he's still in pretty bad shape physically. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah, for him to just turn up this weekend and immediately on day one be fifth with only the four or four of the five dominant Yamahas in the field ahead of him um, was some going. And as I mentioned, his, his contribution to the sport will continue for a long, long time because... I mentioned in previous weeks the Turkish Onsu twins who were inspired to go into motorcycle racing by Kinnan Safoglu. One of those two, Chan Onsu, won the opening round of last, season, last weekend's Red Bull Rookies season opener. 
um, last of weekend. Of course they did. And he's the, <laughs> and he, and he, and he's the co-championship leader, um, along with the Spaniard Carlos Tate. So, um, yeah, so Fogview's already um, created another gem of a talent that's going to uh, be appearing on our screens in the very near future. Um, so the best of luck to Keenan Safwoglu um, this weekend in his final World Supersport race outing. As far as World Superbike's concerned, um, we have to mention the fact that two names that we've already mentioned in our British Superbike round throughout this weekend, Jason O'Halloran, yeah, you heard me right, Jason O'Halloran mm-hmm. uh, will be making his World Superbike debut this weekend because Leon Camier, who was returning from injury this weekend, Tried it out in FP1 and FP2 and simply just could not go on any longer um, based on the pain that he was still in. Ugh. So uh, so Jason O'Halloran, who'd been drafted in, who'd been taken along to him on to be put on standby, has been given the call uh, to go in and replace him at basically no notice at all. He started out in FP3 and was, amazingly, not last, um, which I think is better than we could have expected for O'Halloran. Yes. No preparation at all. Um, so he'll be taking part in Super Bowl and the two races that take place um, as we're recording this tomorrow and Sunday, probably yesterday and today by the time you're hearing this. Um, so we wish him well. Um, but also, Leon Haslam's out there as a wild card on what we have to say, Dre. Um, this is perhaps our best contribution we can make on him and his weekend. Leon Haslam out there on the pornographic elf liveried Pachetti Kawasaki as a wild card in BOA World Superbikes this weekend. That is a beautiful piece of machinery. I just nutted everywhere. That thing is a beauty. Um, oh my god. Um, yeah, it, like uh, that is the first bike I've ever looked at. I was like, you know what? I need die cast form. My god, <laughs> I want. I want to put it on my desk. It's a thing of beauty. Um, it is a beautiful livery. It's, it's a tribute to um a, a, to the elf oils the um uh, livery last year which leon's dad um used to used to race in as well so it is a beautiful tribute if you've not seen it already check it out if you haven't already it is a beautiful fucking bike um the, the livery is stunning it's it's wonderful to see Haslam there again he'll be riding two wildcard appearances because he'll be back for donnington later in the season as well mm, so you're getting fun. two Haslams for the price of one um which is which is awesome so you'll be seeing them back at donnington in a fortnight's time as well but um, great to see Haslam out there again and again. It, it, that 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 livery is good enough to have a crisis with. It is a thing of beauty. And Haslam straight through to Super Bowl two today, uh, eighth quickest oh, wow. uh, awesome. on uh, over combined pre-practice ahead of his teammate, his highly rated teammate, Toprak Razgatioglu, um, who was thirteenth. Albeit there was only a tenth and a half between them. That's how close it was. Um, wow. Either side of that cutoff line, the tail went straight through. Chaz Davies, Jonathan Ray, I know you're all shocked, uh, were first and second. Uh, Marco Melandri, third, um, with Lorenzo Savadori in fourth. Michael Vandermark was fifth, Tom Sykes, sixth, Chavi Forrest, seventh, then came Haslam in eighth, Jordi Torres, ninth, and Michael Rubin Rinaldi on the third of the Aruba Ducatis, the uh, junior team bike, uh, in tenth. Eugene Laverty, who is back and is riding this weekend on his return from injury in eleventh, ahead of Alex Lowe's, who had a crash in practice one and never really recovered. He was 12th overall and therefore <laughs> must go through Super Pole 1 uh, on Saturday if he's going to repeat his pole position of two weeks ago. Um, and Asin, um, we mentioned uh, Davies and Rage Ray. Uh, they were, I have to say, first and second, they were actually tied for first today. They both set identical times um, to finish first mm-hmm. and second in pre-practice three. Um, very, very difficult one to call, I suppose, this weekend. History would suggest Davies, but kind of for the good of the season, kind of has to be Davies. Um, yeah, Chaz, this might be your last chance to do some real damage to the file. This, this is a Chaz Davis round. He's won the last four races. Um, 2016. 
But um, yeah, the way it's going right now, Jonathan Ray has been probably the most comfortably quick dude in the weekend so far. He's been very fast. Um, surprisingly fast, I must say. And it's like, um, guys, you do realize he's at the front here too, right? Like, yeah. if, if guys, if he wins here, you might as well call the season over right here and now. I'm not even joking when I say this because this is a critical Chaz Davies round. And if like I don't know if Karazaki's decided to up development early now just in case they get pegged back with rev limits later on and whatnot, but like this this is a bad sign if Jonathan is this far up the front. Um like Chaz looks like he's not gonna have it easy uh, at the end of this weekend. And if that's the case, then this could be a problem. This could be a serious problem. Like qualifying tomorrow is gonna be critical here. Mm, it is. Uh, as I say, they were both uh, dead level on times today. Jonathan Ray's practice pace on the long ones though looked ominously mm-hmm. good and consistent he did look uh, to have the superior race pace mm-hmm. to Chaz uh, today we shall see whatever happens we'll be back next week um, for episode 60 of Bike Live here on Monosport 101 to review the Imola World Superbike weekend um, World Superbikes two races across from them the Supersport race of the final farewell to Keenan Safoglu and will we get more mayhem in Supersport 300 we shall probably. see we will review yep probably uh, but we'll review it all next week um, here on Bike Live. Before we go, though, very, very quickly, Dre, episode 139 of Monosport 101. God, we're closing in on 150 of these. Um, to Jesus come, Christ. <laughs> to come next week, um, all of the fallout from the first, well, the first proper European round, if you like, of the season at Barcelona. Mm. Um, and I'm not quite sure what kind of race you're going to be talking about at the moment because it's impossible to judge which of the three premier teams in Formula 1 is actually the quickest just yet. Yeah, it's looking very close in practice so far. I I can't I can't with confidence suggest um who is the quickest at the moment between Red Bull, Ferrari and Mercedes. It's looking like Merck's may have an inch on Ferrari, but Red Bull seem to be in the mix as well. It's, it's playing out a lot like 2016 and 2017 where it's like two teams are pretty evenly matched at the moment which could make it interesting i don't know what's going to happen it should be intriguing um me and my narcotic update will be back on motorsport 101 next week to discuss praying that ferrari haven't peaked oh god please oh god no um (laughs) this is the test i've said it before this is the critical round for me if ferrari are in here it looks like they may legitimately actually have the fastest car on the grid. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, all the action from the Spanish Grand Prix at Catalonia, or in some cases the Spain-ish Grand Prix, depending mm. on how you want to live it. There's a, there's a political joke in there somewhere. Um, but, so, <clears throat> but in the Spanish Grand Prix and the IndyCar Grand Prix of Indianapolis, mm. with the return of Helio, magnificent hair. And just just a bit of breaking news that's coming through now. Will Power on pole position for the race tomorrow, which will make it interesting there. Will Power ahead of Robert Wickens on the front row yet again. Uh, the Canadian refuses to go away ahead of Sebastian Bourdais and James Hinchcliffe on in, on the front two rows. Surprised to see Jordan King in fifth place as well. So all of the Spanish Grand Prix action and the Grand Prix of Indianapolis as well. The road course, the big one, comes in a few weeks' time. Mm. But uh, the Grand Prix of Indianapolis as well in IndyCar, all of that across Monaco sport 101 next week yeah because the indy 500 is two weeks away isn't it it's it's the same weekend as the monaco grand prix so uh so yeah let's mark your card places you can find us facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter we are at motorsport underscore 101 our youtube channel and uh this is a key one youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 i mentioned that because in reference to the indy 500 and the monaco grand prix day of classics three 
uh, is two weeks away. Oh, yes. Um, so uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to us on YouTube by then because you'll want to uh, follow all the live action. Uh, we'll be Google Hangouting throughout the day. Um, through those two big races, two of the three jewels in the motorsport crown, uh, just a fortnight oh, away. Yes. Um, our website is motorsport101.net, and if you want to back us financially and you have early access to both of our weekly shows, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101 is the place to go. If you back us at the $5 level, you get the podcast earlier than everyone else. If you back us at the $10 level, you can earn access to our Discord server and listen to these shows live as they happen. Um, my thanks to Andrew Harrison for joining me this week. That was episode 58 ah. of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101. Uh, a show that will go down as the show that referenced the three-wide battle at the front, but a show that was really dominated by the world champion who flossed his way to victory uh, once again. We will join you once again next week to review all the action for Mibbler. Bye for now.